Welcome back to Finding the Edge podcast. I'm Garrett Boyum, joined with Garrett Baker and Robert Fry. And today we have on Andrew Wilson. Andrew Wilson is a professor at Leeds Beckett University. And we brought him on uh, to discuss a tweet that we had seen uh, where he was talking about how a lot of sports science articles, um, the way that I interpreted it was just like sports scientists, just collect a bunch of data and report it uh, with no real consideration as to why. And I think that is something that I noticed for myself. Like it, it stood out to me because I was, I was, I'm the type of person that just wants to collect a ton of data uh, so that it's there. So later on I can go back and I can question it and I can learn from it. Cause if you don't collect data, it's you're, you're having to basically remember based upon your recollection, recollection of the past as to what occurred and draw conclusions and inferences from that. And so it's to me better to have data because sometimes you can conflate days and events and all that sort of stuff. And so I wanted to bring Andrew on to kind of discuss uh, more of like the intent and the thought behind that, that question also, because Andrew has done a ton of research in um, ecological dynamics as well as just knows the field really well. And so I want to bring him on to talk about perspective control and um, some of the other work that he has done. And yeah, to uh, continue on with, with Garrett's point, um, you know, we, we talk, we talked quite a bit about, um, understanding like certain statistical analyses and perspectives. Um, and like one important thing we talked about was like the data that we collect is there. We just have to ask the right questions. Um, and being able to apply it, being able to want to apply it and then apply it with a rationality with ecological dynamics. Yeah. And to go, and to go off to that, I thought, I thought this conversation was actually really, really fascinating. Like as we're going live, I took well over a page of notes and then notes off of notes to be completely honest. So that's, that's how good I think this, this conversation really was. And that idea of like asking better questions, I think just kept coming up. And I think it's something to really think about. I was actually asked this question um, recently about where do I think like all this data that we're collecting in the pro pro orgs, where it should go or where it may go. And to me, it's like, it should start, we should start asking better questions of what to do with the data or start having a theory or a lens to look at the data through versus like having all this data and then trying to trying to put it on people or looking at this very confined thing and then trying to say that skill. To me, that's that's missing pieces of it. Um, and I think Andrew goes through it pretty well and how he's approaching his collection of data and how he's looking at things is, is really interesting. And it's a different way than most scientists are at this point. So it's really cool. And I think too, we we discuss the the importance of having a theory because the theory is going to shape how you see the data, um, and we we all have a framework by which we are looking at things, and sometimes we're not even aware of the lens or the framework or the the theories that we're we're actually um, trying to ap approach the data with. But a lot of times too, we've heard how a, a lot of professional organizations they collect a collect a ton of data and they don't know what to do with it, and so. One of the things that we discuss in today's episode is, okay, what do we do with data, especially if we use a theory like ecological dynamics? How do we then begin to examine the data through an ecological lens? And so we begin to discuss this topic, and we're hoping to have Andrew back on to explore this idea further of how can we apply ecological dynamics uh, with data. And that's been one of the big themes of this podcast. And so I hope you guys enjoy today's podcast with Andrew Wilson. Also, 
If you want to learn more about ecological dynamics, one of our favorite topics here, and you want something that's a little bit more systematic and of like, what are the basics of ecological dynamics and some of the other motor learning theories that are out there and how ecological dynamics is different. Make sure to check out Emergence's course, the Movement Academy intro. It, it is a college style course that has, that's a, it's a 12 week course with 12 weeks worth of lecture along with a discussion board. Um, and then there might be some other little projects that they have you kind of put together in a discussion board. There'll be other people that you can bounce ideas off of. There'll also be, uh, an emergence team member or two that will also be there to be able to answer your questions. Um, and so this is a really good starting place for somebody who's looking for something that's more in depth, but also interactive. And so I highly recommend that you guys check out the Movement Academy intro. You can use the code EDGE7 to get 7% off on this course and highly recommend it. Uh, make sure to use the code EDGE7 to support this podcast and also to support Emergence. To, to jump right in, um, I guess one of the one of the struggles that I have is like people still are, are quite attached to the traditional models of thinking, and then but the way that I think about it is that well, this is the main thing that they interact with, right? Like this is usually the first thing that they learn, and so it's kind of like you know the the chick that comes out of the egg, uh, the first thing that it sees becomes its mother, yeah. type of a thing, and so once you've gone down a line of thinking and you've actually started to build, you know, you could say your castle becomes hard to shift to something else. And so I, I have to acknowledge that and then go, okay, now we have to build a convincing argument, I guess you could say like for why this other path is, is better. Um, and so I guess that's, that's where I guess I find my struggle when, when talking to people, from this approach or ab about an ecological approach um, and then perspective control. The challenge actually becomes, um, I don't feel like I understand, like I can articulate well enough and simply enough, mm -hmm. like yeah. why, why it is that this, this way is, is better. And the other way actually has a whole bunch of embedded assumptions that make it actually difficult to, to practically work out. And so I guess, mm -hmm. Oh, the, the other element too, is that it's a little bit newer. And so like, there's the argument that there's less evidence for it. Right. And so like, well, and then how does it, how does it practically work out? You know, like, and I think the practicalities of it and how it scales is that it's, it's very subtle because if you're using a predictive model, um, and then versus using an ecological approach and viewing things from like a perspective control perspective how you design your practice designs initially, or maybe in your most ideal state actually look very similar because mm -hmm. both need information. And so that's where I think the, the struggle is, is delineating something. Cause I think the underlying theories matter a lot. Um, especially once you start getting into the, when you start actually having to deal with the real world that is very constrained, 
you're going to go for things that are a little bit easier. And so if you, if you think that you can just go with a predictive model and you could break things apart because you just need to give the, the brain, the information, and then it can just put mm -hmm. it, put it together later. Then you, when you're, when you're under constraints, like you went, you would just go with the, the path of least resistance. That's, that's at least my thought of like why your underpinning theory matters is because your decisions yeah. under stress are going to change or under constraint ah. is going, are going yes. to change. Yes. There's quite a few things going on in there. Uh, did you have any yeah. preferences to where to go? So no, what, what stands out most to you and your so, personal experience? I mean, so the first thing is this idea that, um, uh, people tend to come to the ecological approach second is really common. Um, it's really funny, actually. We talk about it a lot. I, I was um, at a conference last year for the first time in ages, uh, meeting up with, with friends in the Netherlands. And, like, we were all people who came to the ecological approach via a different route. So we all had to do the thing of unlearning a whole bunch of stuff. We'd come because we'd encountered it and decided that it, we kind of resonated to it and thought it was a good idea. Um, yeah, there really is just sort of that fact of having to go through that process of unlearning. And it and it kind of mirrors the history of it. So there's that history of the ecological approach being the plucky underdog and being the replacement and being the alternative. And so we're the ones that had to make the case um, to kind of justify our existence. But here's the thing, right? That argument, at least in the scientific literature, that justification for our existence and saying, look, it, actually it's a viable approach, that happened 30, 40 years ago. Right. Um, so the field itself has been productively taking along developing an evidence base for lots of these different things for a long time. So it's that weird situation where actually like a lot of those fights academically happened so long ago and got and all the reasons for saying that we we're at least a viable alternative. They're all there. Part of the problem is that they are often all there in Michael Turvey's writing. God bless him and everything that he does. But he's not the like it, you have to work to get into to, to, to get to the meat of what Turvey is talking about. Um, it's always worth it because that and that clarity and that precision that he brings to it is good. But there is an issue of accessibility, right? Um, and there are, there is an issue of uh, some of those things. So I mean, there's been a lot of interesting moves come up in the last little. So there's been an increasingly large number of useful and accessible books. So Rob Gray is obviously doing gangbusters on this front. He's got a couple out now. And his podcast has obviously been about doing this for a long time. Um, but there's, an, there's now, so uh, Turvey's writing his Lectures on Perception book, which just came out, and then there's the Lectures on Action, which is coming out, and that's kind of pitched as kind of a, a graduate-level uh, class on theories of perception and action. So good, but quite detailed. Uh, but there's also now Wagman and Blau uh, have their undergraduate-scale textbook has came out last year. Uh, and actually, I've just been reading through it, and it's good. It's great, right? It's it engages with all the material and it tries to convey some difficult ideas, but it engages with them and it's pitched at sort of an undergraduate level to try and make it an accessible topic for undergraduate psychology students to encounter in a sensible kind of way. Um, so, yeah, like, I think you're right. I think it's a really real issue, but I also think there have been some great strides in the last few years about around creating accessible access to information about the ecological approach and how it works and what it is and why it's interesting. Um, and honestly, a big chunk of that has been driven by the by the interest of applying it through ecological dynamics to sports. 
um, because um, when you're doing it sort of within the academic field, you can get away for a bit longer with just you know, being still a bit jargony or a bit technical. But as soon as you try and apply it, then people very sensibly come back and say, wait a minute, how do I actually turn this into a concrete thing? So that pushback, I think, has been really useful. I think it's been a really useful sort of uh, spur. Um, yeah, so that's part of it. And then I guess sort of one of the other things you were talking about in there um, was sort of there's this issue of your underlying theory of how all these things work and and how important that is. And that's one that's certainly one of the big discussion points that comes out in within the bounds of sports science and, and coaching and things like that. People sort of talk about, well, how how much do I have to care about the details of the academic theory that underpins this in order to inform my practice? And should I care? And, and does it matter? Um, and you were certainly coming up saying, yeah, it probably does matter. And I would strongly endorse that, right? I'm not a coach. I'm a scientist, right? I'm an academic, so of course I think our, our stuff is important. But actually, I actually think it is because I think it matters. And I think you had a nice phrase in there. You said, um, "You're just like what was it? Your, your decision making under pressure kind of flips to what you know, right? Um, and 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 if and if what you know or if, if kind of the core of of the motivation of all your coaching techniques is from a more traditional approach, as soon as you hit and you but you're trying to uh, develop an ecological one, as soon as you hit any kind of barrier. Or any kind of complication, or if you can't quite get it to work, there is just that instinct to go back to what you know you can at least do, independent of how much you know whether it works or not. Yeah, so I think that's I think that's really interesting. I mean, for for myself, I've seen people with minimal knowledge actually, like just having a rudimentary understanding of the the concepts, actually do quite a lot with with that. Um, and then just even too, if you look at some of the most effective coaches, if you look, if you begin to like begin to investigate a little bit more into like what they do, oftentimes it's very ecological. It might not be a hundred percent ecological. And I think that's where maybe I, I could see people then using that as evidence for why they could, you know, sort of, uh, sit the fence and use both sides. But I, yeah. I just think of it from the standpoint of if you want to be able to, improve what you're doing because oftentimes like if if somebody becomes successful a lot of times people just want to copy whatever it is that they're doing mm -hmm. and so yeah, eventually sure. like because even in i think in pro baseball once analytics became popular everybody had an analytics team so now it becomes the question of how you use analytics like the the ones who are have a better system for using analytics will then therefore have the advantage and so like that's where to me all these things come into play of like, if you want to reproduce your success, you have to have an understanding for why that underlying success happens. Um, because one that's, of the... That's, that's triply important for the ecological approach, of course, because it's very much not a kind of a cookbook recipe kind of scenario for your training situations. It's very much around the design of constraints is very much a an interactive process where you have to be fairly firmly embedded in, in, in your training environment with your athletes, co-designing with them. It's kind of baked into the idea. There isn't a playbook of constraints that you can apply in order to get specific behaviors to emerge. It's, a, it's unfortunately more annoying than that. You can get stuff reliably, but you can't, yeah. And so having an understanding of where, you're, where those things are coming from and the motivation for them, the theoretical kind of framework that's generating that as an idea, that's, the, that, that's how you generate 
the next idea for trying to get the thing that you're trying to get to work to work. Absolutely. Well, in I, I I feel like in some ways I did this to myself. I was so hyped up on all this stuff that I didn't get enough sleep. So thoughts are going to get dropped <laughs> in, the, in the middle of this. But uh, I think Baker, because or actually Robert, because maybe maybe we should go on the the, the data question in terms of yeah. collecting a ton of data because I think this is this is part of it. Like to me. I think it's important from just the, like your, your tweet on being careful, I guess, you know, like of just collecting uh, a ton of data without having any consideration of why, mm -hmm. um, and reporting it. I think that's the thing because like when I've done stuff and I have a, like I take something from a paper or whatever, and then I want to collect data. I don't, I, what I do with a lot of like the sports science findings, whether you're talking about something like MODIS and the, um, the, the ideal workload management number, that sweet spot, uh, for acute to, um, chronic workload. Yeah. I I've seen criticism of it. And so hence where it allows you to ask the question of like, well, maybe I can actually ratchet that up or maybe I don't have to follow that as rigidly. And mm -hmm. like, we, if we, if we were to do more research, would we actually find uh, the the reality to be somewhere different? And so, to me, I don't. I, I want to collect data first, and a bunch of data before I t say exactly and report like this is what how we're actually mm -hmm. going to use it. Because if I if I if I work with my assumptions first, I will it will exclude some things that will actually work. Not that you don't have an intention and guide where you're going and where you're looking, mm -hmm. but in the same way of Rob kind of talks about it, like keeping your affordances open, like not coming to too much of a conclusion too fast, like keeping mm -hmm. yourself open to the data, especially when it's new. Right. And that, that I think is where the, 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 the nuance is, is like, if it's, if it's something that's established and we've seen this recreated pattern and we want to go this direction, then I think it makes sense. But I also think when we use analytics, something that we've talked about before on this podcast is Goodhart's law of like when a measure becomes a target, it ceases to yeah. be a useful measure. And so like trying to balance those two things. And so I guess that's where I think what, what really resonated to me was there's this, this need or this, this felt need to actually have to report the data initially to show value um, right. instead of just absorbing and, and observing. So, okay, there's a few things that occur to me on that front. Let me do a little framing here. So the tweet that kind of set this off and got us chatting about having a chat was me just being a bit grumpy on Twitter, in which I was just sort of identifying. I've been reading a lot of papers from sports science journals lately for a couple of projects that I'm working on. And this is a thing that I've noticed over the years in lots of different sort of context as well and it really sticks out to me as a psychologist for, for a variety of reasons sports science academic papers collect and report a lot of data especially biomechanics kind of work right they just they report a lot of numbers there's very little discussion about why they measured those numbers or what exactly they think those numbers mean um, 
which and it sticks out to me like a sore thumb because I'm busy trying to figure out what all my numbers mean when I measure stuff. Like, what am I measuring the right thing? And am I measuring? Am I actually successfully measuring something that's telling me something interesting about the thing that I'm studying? Is a big question. It's a key question. And um, part of the problem, like data collection, is the easy bit, right? But and so that's the problem is that you have to kind of use it in service of a good question. And good questions don't actually come from data. Good questions come from theory. Um, and you know, there's lots of philosophy of science on this, and there's lots of ways of people. There's lots of ways of sort of thinking about this. But let me give you kind of a concrete example, right? So in psychology, actually, so you know, as much as I was just saying, as a psychologist, I have theory mostly as an ecological psychologist that I have strong opinions about theory. Because in psychology, there's also a bit of a tendency to collect data and interpret it in a fairly freeform kind of way. It's whatever you can make the statistics do, etc. And there isn't sort of a single kind of core there are core theoretical commitments in cognitive psychology but not to the point where they're, they're generating specific hypotheses all the time sometimes it's just kind of a constraint on how you talk about your data and in science what that gets you is a replication crisis right that's what it got psychology the replication crisis is the problem where people were running experiments finding statistically significant results and not sufficiently interrogating the relationship between the study that they'd run and the data that they were getting and asking sort of really, they weren't asking important enough questions. And one of the, one of the results was that you end up with a bunch of, bunch of results that were just statistical accidents. People got lucky. There was also some, you know, there was some dodgy sort of practices that were underpinning this, but a big chunk of this, and a lot of people talk about this as kind of a, a lack of theory. People weren't asking hypothesis driven questions. They were just collecting data and running experiment, running the next experiment, running the next experiment. And so in, in sports science I, uh, journals, I just kind of I see this quite a bit where it's just I collected a bunch of data and I analyzed it and I found some differences and I told you about it. And then I'm, I'm just sitting there going, yeah, but what does any of it mean? Um, why did you run that data? What, why did you think that the velocity of that joint angle was the thing that was going to be the most important? Well, it was the thing that you measured, right? That's, that's not a good reason. Um, so there's that, and that element of that frustration. And then they, it, it it shows up, I think, the, the connection to analytics and pro sports as well, I think, is really interesting as well. One of the things that's really intrigued me lately is discovering just how much data there actually is in sports. I mean, I, I knew lots of sports, baseball and all that sort of stuff have been in the lead of this and collecting data. But now it's really, really easy to get movement kinematics out of video, right? Um, and, you know, automatically digitizing an entire, you know, like English football game digitizing the position of the players all over over the pitch, for example, you know, first of all, it's been used to create all kinds of cool displays and you can see people passing and, you know, when they're doing play-by-play -play and all that sort of stuff. And that's kind of cool. But it's really easy now to generate those numbers automatically, like the computational tools exist to do that digitizing and nice, nice and robustly. And the, and the thing about big data is that you can find kind of anything you want in a big data set. And you only find things that are interesting if you use that data in service of ans answering good questions. And data doesn't tell you the good questions to ask. Data data is where you go with your good question, but you have to have that good question ahead of time. And scientifically, that good question comes from theory, which means that if you want to be asking good questions, this is why it's important to understand your theory and to have a theory that you are explicitly talking and thinking about as your source of your questions. Because actually as a scientist, it's the source of my questions to go run my next experiment. As the coach, the theory is the source of your questions to try and figure out what the next round of constraints are that you place to try and make your training session 
do more of what you wanted it to do, for example. It has to be a place where those come from, right? Um, and so that's kind of the problem. And it's, I, I think it's a problem that occurs at, at, at a few different levels, at a few different scales. And like I said, it shows up in, in slightly different ways. It shows up, shows up as a potential replication crisis and potential disaster academically. And it shows up as just kind of people just reporting stuff. And, you know, just there's so much, there's so many numbers around now. So the question is, what do you want to do with them? Um, and it's really easy to ask stupid questions. It's really easy. <laughs> um, it's really easy to ask bad questions, right? That's and, and and so that's why it's really useful to have a good theory and some explicit commitments to try and say, no, okay, the reason why I'm going to ask that question rather than this other question is because this is the one that makes more. This this is a better question because of my various commitments. And it's okay to rule things out. That's the other thing a good theory does. Having a good framework, having a good understanding of what it is you're trying to tackle. Um, it's okay to rule things out ahead of time and say, I'm not going to ask that question because that question doesn't make any sense. Someone else wants to ask it because they think it makes sense. Then that can be their problem and that's fine. And if they find something interesting, then, then you have to have a conversation. But, um, it's okay to rule things out as, no, I'm not going to do that. And that's another thing that crops up, I think, in sports science. Sports science literature doesn't, and coaching, some of the coaches and, and interacting, people don't like ruling things out. People don't like saying, oh, no, I'm not going to, I'm not going to try and do that for sort of theoretical reasons because that doesn't suit my constraint. People seem to get very nervous about that. Whereas scientifically, you know, being able to do that is, is a huge help, right? It keeps you focused. It keeps you grounded. It keeps you pursuing a particular kind of coherent uh, account. So. Yeah, so there's a lot, a lot going on there. I don't know if there's anything in particular to pick up on. Yeah, and to kind of pick up on that, um, you brought up a lot of great points. So I think one, one thing that is a big struggle right now in the analytics world is we treat a lot of things as prescriptive. And what I mean by that is, you know, we just report data and say, here it is. But we don't, we don't do the secondary thing of, you know, what to do with it. We just say, you know, hey, X is Y. And I think part of it, too, is, you know, they're with all these numbers, like there's a big lack of knowledge and slash understanding with it because we don't we have this big constraint called time, especially mm -hmm. in the coaching. world. Yeah, uh, sure. Because once you, you know, in colleges that say maybe have certain form of analytics but don't have the staff behind it to be able to analyze these numbers on a full-time role, they're going to cut corners. Mm -hmm. And with that being said, then it becomes an issue of, again, Goodhart's law, but then it also becomes an issue. So like in the statistics world, this happens a lot. And I'm sure you've run across this a lot, quite a bit, Andrew. Um, you know, a lot of statisticians will try to fit an R-squared model. Or yeah. try, try to just force variables to be like, oh, my R squared's this, so that means this. Yeah. Um, but then they fail to realize, obviously, the, the classic quote, you know, correlation does not imply causation. So mm -hmm. I think if given more time, or at least an educational aspect to understand, like, what these analytics mean and how we can apply them would help a lot. But yeah. Right now, we're just dealing with a big constraint, which is simply put, time, given mm -hmm. you know the amount of resources available. Yeah, I 
I'll often say, never send an engineer to do a psychologist's job. Uh, definitely never send a psychologist to do an engineer's job, but don't do it the other way around either. And by that, I mean, there's a lot of really clever, sophisticated, technically minded engineering people who have built the capabilities to accumulate all this data really quickly and efficiently and effectively and reliably. And that's amazing. But they were the wrong people to come up with the things to do with the data, right? Because what they tend to do is they tend to generate numbers based on things that they can quickly generate from the data set as opposed to trying to find the data, what the data can tell them about something that they actually want to know about. They don't know how to ask behavioral questions. So my favorite example of this right now uh, is in football, right? So in, in English, uh, sort of European football, uh, soccer, uh, is, you know, you can get these data sets very quickly. You know, these clubs just send off the video footage of all their training sessions, for example, and a company, company will digitize it, produce a bunch of metrics and just send them back a spreadsheet, right? And all of those metrics are things like, you know, number of times person X touched the ball, number of times person X passed the ball, all the, you know, some interesting numbers, right? Why? But, but the thing is, why, and, and those then become the numbers that people are using the data for. What, why are those the numbers? Well, those are the numbers that are easy to pull out that an engineer would look at and go, yes, I can count the number of times somebody touched the ball. That's the thing I can do, and I know the algorithm for that. That's fine. But actually, the more interesting thing is not how many times did the person pass the ball, what you really want to know is how many times did they pass the ball when passing the ball was a good option? How many times did they not pass the ball when passing the ball was not a good option? And then the various combinations, right? And that gets you more complicated. Instead of just asking, you know, uh, how long, you know, how many times did person X touch and then pass the ball? It's when that person had a ball, what were the opportunity, what were the affordances in front of them for passing, right? What were the gaps? Um, and here's the thing. All of that, all of those kinds of questions can be answered with the exact same data set, right? So instead of just taking the data from an individual and counting how many times they do things with the ball, now you have to start asking questions. When the person had the ball, where was everybody else? That data exists in the data set, but no one's thinking to ask it. Well, when I say no one, people are starting to think about how to ask these questions. They're harder questions, and they're the kinds of questions that you only think to ask if you think affordances are interesting. And they're only the kinds of things if you start thinking a bit more relationally where you're, where the skill of a player is not just did they pass the ball, but did they pass the ball when passing the ball was a good option, right? How many times did they try to pass the ball when it really wasn't on, right? Those are two, you know, very distinct questions. Um, but it's all, it's all potentially answerable. This is the thing that's intrigued me is that the data's there. You just have to ask different questions of it. And like I said, there are people out there who are trying to ask and answer these different questions. But the reason why those people are coming up with those different questions is that they're ecologically driven, right? They understand that they're coming at it from an ecological perspective. They're coming at it from uh, an understanding of, you know, more dynamical systems and thinking more dynamically and thinking about process rather than outcome. So the good questions aren't coming from the data, right? The data's there. And can be interrogated in a bunch of different ways. So, and that gets back to the idea of just, you know, generating your R square fit or whatever it is on what, whatever your data. Statistics are great, but what statistics are is it's a linear model. You're trying to model your data with a set of linear components. If you're trying to model a non-linear system, then you're only going to get an approximation out of your model unless your model of the data can handle non-linearity, right? So the general linear model is useful and powerful because the maths is straightforward and it works surprisingly well. But the reality is that actually the things that we're kind of interested in, especially once you start getting into pro sports, especially when you start getting into more complex, 
you know, sports with multiple teams and lots of different people and lots of different moving parts, um, that's an, that's an immediately a nonlinear complex system. And it, you, you need to be approaching the data from an entirely, from a radically different perspective in order to be getting any sort of meaningful, uh, uh answers out of the data. Um, but I do, like I said, I just want to emphasize, right? I get kind of cranky about this, but I am optimistic. And the reason I'm optimistic is that the technology that now exists to generate the data quickly and efficiently produces data that can be interrogated using these tools. We just need to join up more. And the, the other thing gets to, you know, the, you're talking about the, 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 the time for the coaches. Coaches weren't involved in the development of the interface for pulling out which variables, right? This is the engine. Somebody sent the engineers to do the coaches and the psychologist job. So the engineers didn't develop metrics based on what the coaches wanted to know. The coaches are having to learn how to do stuff with the numbers that the engineers were able to easily pull out of the data. So that's, and that's the wrong way around. That's a bad design process, right? So the ideal situation, which again is happening out there in the world, but it needs to happen, it needs to happen more is that the, the technically minded people need to be asking, need to be applying those technical skills to answering questions brought to them by the behavioral experts, by psychologists, by coaches, by athletes, uh, and people who actually know what's going on, uh, take those questions, apply those technical skills to answering those questions, and then building the nice flash interface that takes the data and automatically generates those numbers instead of different numbers, right? And so that's, again, it's a more iterative design process, but it's, and it's, it's a mystery to me why it's not the norm, right? People, people t- seem to have a very, they don't seem to think that coaches should be involved in, in the design of the of the analytics product. They might talk to them about the usability of the interface and have that kind of user discussion, but they don't seem to be involving them in the development of the process. And, we, and the, net, the net result is a bunch of numbers, some of which are interesting and might correlate with something interesting, some of which aren't. And then you get people, and then of course, if you, You've got coaches with limited time trying to figure out which numbers are good and which numbers are bad and eventually throwing the whole thing out as a waste of time. So anyway, that's my pitch. If there's any analytics companies out there that want to play, come talk to me, right? I can solve all your problems and you can solve all mine by being able to implement these things. Yeah, and then to kind of like bring some more light to it, um, you know, like like you mentioned uh, in terms of football, so... Uh, StatsBomb allowed users to use open source tracking data for the World Cup. Um, So within that, you know, I know this happens a lot in terms of, you know, understanding like football, both European and American is, um, you know, affordances. It's like, oh, that guy was open when I released the ball or passed the Mm -hmm. ball, but then he wasn't. Uh, Mm -hmm. So like being able to analyze that data highly crucial on that end. Um, but, uh, you know, I just thought that was a good point on that end, but, you know, like you said too, that, that technical model, um, in terms of engineers, like that's another great point, but you know, the fallacy that we're under right now is we want things quickly. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't, if we go to like a fast food place, and say, you know, hey, I want a hamburger with fries. Like, we don't want to like break it down and say, like, I want this be, you know, this patty this way, this burger cooked medium, et cetera, et cetera. So, I think part of it too is just adding a little bit of patience into our mm-hmm. our system. Yes, 
Yeah, absolutely. Because these things do take time and they are a little messier. And it is the relationship between the number and performance is harder, right? I mean, this is the other thing. There's the, this is the other thing that analytics provides is kind of that illusion of simplicity and control. Um, oh, I got someone to run faster, therefore they're a better footballer. Well, it's like, no, actually, you got them to run faster. Whether or not that translates to anything useful on the football field is an entirely separate question, right? Um, and so, you know, it's delightful that you were able to get them to run faster and then measure that. And sure, being able to run fast definitely correlates with some performance things on the football field with your R squared of, you know, whatever it is. Um, but yeah, we can probably do better than that. Actually, that's the other thing I would like, like that, that's it, right? Sure, you can do that and you can get some information out. And it's clearly working because some companies and some uh, teams are doing things like this and getting benefits from it, right? Able to get, yeah, able to push things forward. Um, I just feel like we can probably do even better. I mean, I, that to me is the, the whole point there of like, I think we can do better than what we're currently doing. But when people's yeah. jobs are on the line, Absolutely. I think they want, they want something that is more proven. Like, okay, you want to do this. And this is where to me, the whole report system comes in is like, there's a game being played of the person with a nicer report with something that's easier to grasp um, is more likely to get moved forward than something that is a little bit more complex that takes a little bit more time to like really yes. grasp and understand. And that's, yeah. that's where I think the challenge, at least to me is even if you use experts or like coaches to develop technology, they wouldn't develop what the bat sensors were telling us. If, if that makes sense, like everybody mm -hmm. tries to take their understanding of a mechanical model of an, like a traditionalist approach of like an ideal way to move. Mm -hmm. um, what they've yes. come to understand, like to be the biomechanical best optimal. And they try to shove that into what the technology spits out. Cause I saw yeah. that happen when the bat sensors came out of people were trying to infer like, Oh, were their hands staying inside? And even though yeah. it, the technology didn't necessarily uh, demonstrate that, but um, the, it was just interesting to see that because it, even too, if you believe that a batter should actually swing down to the ball, well, then you're going to change how you actually look at it. Even though all your mm -hmm. data coming in doesn't most often doesn't reflect that you're going to try mm -hmm. to push the data in a certain direction. And so to me, that's where there's something to be said of observing what's going on first and not, immediately assuming that it's wrong and that you need to fix it. Like mm -hmm. I, I, and that's, that's where I see like sometimes the, the danger of taking your preconceived notions and trying to fit everything to that um, and change reality to fit your, your theory. Um, mm -hmm. And so that's where I think it's like, it's you, why theories are important. And like, because like, for example, when you start talking about science, like I almost, would like to hear your thoughts on like the myths of science that people, because it they have, right. You talked about, I mean, I've, I've heard of like these different theories of like the frame problem and, and this idea of using uh, that idea to like explain why is it that we struggle to be on the same page. Mm -hmm. um, and this is me, like, I mean, I've only just interacted with this. So like, I, I, I don't have a deep understanding of it, but I know that this is a whole theory that helps. Mm -hmm. and, and part of what's useful of something that's well-constructed is mm -hmm. that, it gives you proper constraints to um, keep you, to direct you more towards your goal of what we actually all want. But because we've been sold oftentimes to say like pop science 
um, understanding of things. Like to, mm-hmm. to me, everybody talks about like, well, can you explain it simply? And it's like, <laughs> uh, y- if if your goal is always simplicity and to explain it simply, not that that's necessarily a bad goal. Oftentimes you strip out the, um, what something actually means in order to get that simplicity. And so you actually, yeah. you lose, you don't actually have the whole thing. A really good simplicity actually transmits almost the whole thing to a person to be able to actually understand it. Yes. So yeah, this is a thing. So what, one one of the hats that I wear in my day job is as an educator, right? So I'm a I'm a, a lecturer at a university, so I teach, but I'm also interested in successfully communicating and educating people about the ecological approach through my papers, through interacting on social media, etc. So this issue of how best you educate people about these things is very much on my mind. And then one of the things that especially comes up in the coaching realm. And it especially gets thrown around in social media is this idea that ecological psychology, no, it's it's too hard, it's too full of jargon and all that sort of stuff. Can't you make it simpler? Can't you strip it down? And I think your point is very well taken that actually um, there's there's being clear and there's simplifying. And those are those can easily be two different things. Simplifying can often just be trying to take a square peg and jam it through a round hole. And you, if you know, you succeed, but when it comes out, it's not a square peg anymore, right? It's been rounded off. So, um, I, I always try and reply to people and say, look, um, I get that there are technical terms in the, in the ecological approach. For example, uh, we talk about things that don't feature in everyday language. We talk about attractors and various dynamical systems and we talk about affordances. We talk about perceptual information. We talk about attunement and all these kinds of self organization. And part of the issue is that these concepts don't just float around in day-to-day conversation the way a lot of psychology and psychological terms float around in day-to-day conversation. So they are technical terms in that sense. But part of the issue is that they're, they're only jargon if they're kept impenetrable. And I can help, for example, bring someone along for the ride of learning what those words mean and how to use them, but the person's got to meet me halfway, right? They, 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 like there's a, there's a responsibility of the learner to come towards me as I am coming towards them. And then we figure out how best to get this to work. And the thing is, without that, with just the demand to make it simpler, make it consumable for me, that's not how, that's not how learning works fundamentally. That's not how learning things works. What that is, is it's just an objection that's designed to make it so that I can't succeed. Um, so it's a kind of a, it's a bit of a bad faith move. Uh, and, you know, and, but here's the thing, right? It, it comes up, you know, students will come to me and say, I just want it simpler. And part of my job is convincing them that actually we both have some responsibility here. I, I'm willing to do my part, right? And come in and try and help those communicate. That, that's fine. It's okay that, but it's also, it's okay that this stuff is initially a bit tricky and new. And that if you want to actually understand it, I can't, I can't give you that. I can't give you knowledge, right? Let's face it. That's a very ecological notion right there. I can't give you knowledge and have you and make you know something, right? What we can do is between us come to an agreement about what's going on. And the, the terms are just the vocabulary. The terms, the language is just, it's just a vocabulary that enables us to talk about it. Um, as well as, you know, I've got, there's a whole tool, you know, toolbox of dynamical systems modeling stuff that enables me to talk about what I'm doing using maths. Right. And sometimes that stuff's actually way more appropriate than language because language is actually 
Now, you know, it's a whole, whole other kettle of uh, fish there as to whether or not some of these things are very hard to verbalize, right? Um, and but whereas they're very, you know, it's very straightforward if you can just whack it in an equation and just get once you spend a little bit of time learning what the equation means, right? So, um, yeah, so there's that's it. Like the, it is, it is tricky, and there's a lot. To, there, there, it does require it requires effort from everybody. And if the person, if the other person at the other end doesn't want to make the effort, then there's only so much you can do to help them learn. If they think that learning is the transmission of knowledge from me to them. And there's only so much I can give them, um, you know, and that, that works on a few different levels as well. I mean, for me, like if I were to say something like affordances, like I'm communicating to you a whole lot of information through one word, like, mm -hmm. and, I, and I began yes. to realize this in, in like religious texts and language, right? Like if, if you use a word like Calvinism or like whatever, like you're communicating a, a ton of information through one word. And so it, mm -hmm. it cuts down on how how much you have to go over and cover like you can yes. you can then grab something and, and and like move with a whole toolkit of understanding and like and to me that's the that's where you can't sit there and just be like well i want the simplest version of it it's like okay i can maybe give you an analogy and that can a good analogy can take you really far i think sure. you know because you can and that's that's where you know to to jump back a little bit the way that i begin to think about like when i encounter a problem like especially like one that we're talking about, like there's so much complexity there. I almost feel like I have to take an ecological approach to understanding that issue. And that's mm -hmm. where I actually think the the real power is, is like, this is something that like Sean, I think, you know, a, of a theme that I hear from, from, from Sean Miska so much is like, this should become your form of life. Like when you mm -hmm. begin to actually become ecological through and through, it helps you make sense of the the world a lot more. And at least something mm -hmm. that, for me personally, like I've, I, I kind of held myself to, or came to an understanding of like, if I understand something, I don't get to be mad about it because if <laughs> I understand something, then I have to now problem solve to either become more, I guess now to use the ecological language, become better fitted to this reality of like mm -hmm. what I understand. And so that to me, you know, in a long securitous way is like, how I begin to like try to parse through this stuff, but like, cause there are certain challenges of like just understanding human psychology of most people because of the, there's so much information out there. Like the, in order to function, it's easier to grab something like a, a surface level understanding and to run with it. And that's where I think like the power of ecological dynamics, you could say is like, you can, you can take a very surface level understanding and run with it and you'll get mm -hmm. really far. Like, mm -hmm. I mean, I've just yeah, seen people with a, who don't actually understand ecologicals very uh, deeply, but they'll, they're doing a lot of live ABs, you know, facing a pitcher. Um, they're blending their training. Like they might do quite a bit of strength training to work on improving your bat speed. But mm -hmm. just like you said, to me, bat speed is something very similar to just sprint speed. Okay, great. You can run really fast straight ahead. It does give you... Now you have more action capabilities, but yes. at the same point, it's not coupled to anything game-like yet. And so until you've actually learned how to harness that ability, like that's because the, the way that I look at it is like everybody's trying to justify their existence because there's, there's this, there's this element of, if you don't understand what I do, you're easily fireable. Mm -hmm. And like, that's the, that's the, yeah. the thing of like why I understand like, Oh, 
um, you actually have to be able to, for somebody, because of the, the, the way that I like, when I was first encountering the ecological approach, people were, were like, okay, so what then becomes my role as a coach? If I'm mm-hmm. just sitting back and like creating this environment, I sit back and I don't say anything like what, a, what am I like? I, I have no job. And that's like, no, that's not actually true at all. But uh, one quote that I'd found years ago um, before I ran into the ecological approach actually resonated really, really well uh, to what I think an ecological approach is from a constraint led and all this sort of stuff, what you're doing. The mm-hmm. best leader is one who, when everything is said and done, the people say we did it ourselves. Yeah. And, and and so like, if that's true, that like when I'm doing my stuff really, really well, it's almost as if, right. I am the, the stage hands for a play, like mm-hmm. in all the, the behind the scenes people, like a really good production happens when you don't know I exist. But as soon as, yeah. as soon as everything breaks down, like, boom, it's like everybody knows you exist. And like, mm-hmm. and so that's where I think it gets hard to begin to justify to other people your existence when you're, when you're at your best, when people don't notice you. Yeah. And yeah, look, look I'm, I'm fully on board with all of that sort of idea, but it does pose a bit of a quandary, as I understand it, in the world of professional sports, right? Because you, if, you, if, if you're not seen to be being the thing that is generating the success, then the question, well, then why are you here? Seems like a very straightforward question to ask. And like, like I get that as a challenge, right? That's a, that's a, that's a, a, that's a very real constraint that people are operating under to, uh, and, and, and part of the ecological approach to education of any kind, coaching physical skills and, you know, I try and teach as ecologically as I can too. And a big chunk of what I do is not being in charge of things, being, being, a, you know, constraining and guiding and nudging, but not, not being the one responsible for the success of the, of the session. And yeah, a lot of coaches I've talked to talk about that as a thing that they value and that they've come to value. Uh, and it's one of the reasons why people who like the ecological approach often like the ecological approaches because it, it aligns with that value of thinking that their job is to be a little bit invisible. Their job is to just be the, the measure of their success is not how visible they are. The measure of their success is how well everybody else does. That's a, that's a very particular, uh, it's a very particular value set for an educator. And it's, and it's not one that everybody shares for lots of reasons. Um, and so if you don't have that, or if you live in a world where that value set is not valued, then it's a very real problem. And it's a thing that comes up a lot, right? Is I need to be able to show results. I need to be able to show that the things that I'm doing are producing results, et cetera. Um, and it's, yeah, it's a tricky one. It's a tricky one. Uh, part of what we need, we, you know, we need people in positions who are doing stuff to be spending more time about just talking about what they're doing and how they're seeing the, the success so that the we're developing ways of talking about what counts as succeeding. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a, it's a tricky space to be in. And I, I, I absolutely get that as a constraint, uh, as an obstacle for people adopting these kinds of approaches. Yeah. I mean, cause like when you're, like you're talking about like results, like, well, okay, I was the one in charge. And so I guess I'm responsible for everything that then 
results from it. And because there, when, when you get into the complexity of it, how can you actually really deduce how much of it has to do to which part of the thing that you did? Because if you're doing multiple mm-hmm. things and lots of things, like how can you pin it back on, I mean, unless you have a theory to kind of guide you towards and highlight what things you think are important. I mean, because this is is it, right? This is one of the interesting things that's been developing alongside all kind of the theoretical rationale from the ecological approach and then applying that that sort of mechanistic understanding of what perception, action and learning and skill acquisition are applying that to sports to ecological dynamics. One of the other interesting things that's been developing in parallel with that is developing ecological ways of talking about the activity of operating within that space, right? So Marco Sullivan and Carl Woods and Keith Davids, obviously, and lots of other people and James Vaughan and things are writing papers that are about what it's like to be a person operating in those spaces and what counts as succeeding and not succeeding. And so a big chunk of those papers, one of the interesting things about those papers is that they're busy having to develop a vocabulary for articulating what counts as success, right? Because the success is coming, is, 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 is happening in lots of different ways. And the other thing about it, of course, is that one of the other key elements of the ecological approach is that, frankly, the, the coach is not the sole determinant of success, right? Like I was saying about education, right? You know, I could be the greatest teacher in the world, right? But if you're not listening, then I can't help, you know? So there is, so part of the success is success or failure and where those things are coming from is distributed across the entire institution, across the team, across the academy, across the across the institution that that is supporting the players, et cetera, right? If all your players are, I don't know, if all your players are tired because they're working two jobs in order to be able to do something, then that, like, there's only so much you can coach past that, like, as a dumb example, right? But these things are, you know, so this, this is where you're trying to get to this complexity, right? Complexity is the deal. And that's the other nice thing. It gets back to that point you were saying earlier about one of the things that I certainly like, I think you were saying as well, one of the things I like about the ecological approach is that it is, at, at its heart, a brave attempt to front up to the actual complexity of the actual thing that you're trying to study or inter, uh, uh, intervene on. And it's an attempt to, to meet what you're, what you're interacting with on its own terms, rather than to take it and to jam it through the tools of your general linear model, because that's what you've got access to. So it's funny, actually, Sort of historically and academically, um, the ecological approach has been a place where, you know, we, you know, we'll run stats and do our anovers and stuff like that. But there, you know, to be honest, mostly what we end up doing is, in an because a big chunk of our training is about trying to front up to the complexity of stuff. People who are ecologically motivated and dynamically motivated tend to try and build analysis tools that suit or go and find analysis tools that suit the complexity of the problem rather than studying the problem and trying to jam it into the analysis tool that you know how to do. And that's, again, a thing that makes us really stick out academically, right? Um, and, but it, and, it, and it becomes a problem because we're the only ones using, I don't know, you know, people, you know, we're doing things like uncontrolled manifold analysis and, you know, fractal this and, and differential that, and it's, everybody's getting very sort of stressed and, that gets back to the vocabulary issue, right? And again, part of our job has to be, and people do good jobs of trying to do this, of trying to bring people along saying, look, the reason why we're doing this is because blah, blah, blah. Um, but I think you're right. I think, like, I think trying to front up to the complexity of that is impo- of, of what it is you're trying to do is important. 
that and and one of the nice things that's been happening over the last twenty years is that there's a lot of tools out there. There's there's <clears throat> tools for handling data that front up the complexity of data. There is vocabulary tool. Like I was saying, like this, I'm just thinking about some recent stuff from Marcus Sullivan and, and Jimmy Vaughan. You know, they're building a a conceptual toolbox, right? They're building ways of talking about these things, right? Because some of those ways of talking didn't exist before because they weren't required because no one was talking about the full complexity. And what they're, a big chunk of what a lot of that style of work is trying to do is build a conceptual toolbox that then enables you to have conversations to tell people what it is that you're actually doing and, and, and you can start having the conversations about whether or not you think it's working. Yeah. So one thing that to jump back a little bit that, that you touched on was the measurement part. Mm-hmm. I, I, one thing that I took from David Snowden and his Kinevin framework is that it's because of a, it's a complex system. It's, mm-hmm. it's better to measure the direction of travel than it is to measure like, are we getting to X, Y, Z number? Um, and, and so like, to me, it's in service of whatever your main goal is. And so, for example, in baseball, you have to ask the question, well, how, like, what are we trying to do here? If the goal is to win a baseball game, you know, cause and I mean, cause it's, it's at what level are you breaking down the, the, the analysis? Cause everybody wants to win the championship, right? Well, in order to do that, you have to win games, but Mm -hmm. you only have to win enough games to get you to the dance. You don't have to win all of them. You just have to win enough. Mm-hmm. Um, because like the team that has the best record in the regular season, at least in baseball does not, is not, it's not indicative that you're going to win the world series. Yeah. Um, and that's, I mean, Robert, I guess you could, you could speak more to that. How often the team with the most wins actually is the one that wins the world series that people have been, been complaining about that actually more recently that like relative to other sports, baseball tends not to have the best teams playing yeah. in the, like the, in the final game. Um, which I don't, I don't hate that, uh, but but it's it does. It's an interesting it, outcome, though, right? It's an interesting outcome of the of the selection process. The selection process selected the best team, and the best team isn't necessarily the ones with all the best players, but it's the one that was able to consistently do the work on the day <clears throat> across an, a, an extraordinarily large number of games, right? So there's there's your selection pressure. If you want a different outcome, you have to change your selection pressure. You have to change the structure of the seat of the regular season, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, on, on the second end of it, in terms of just sheer probability, like given how baseball is constructed, you have your three game ser- wild card series, you have your five game division series, seven game championship world series. Like there's that element of randomness within that probability to say that the weaker team per se um, is more likely to win because if you do it, whereas it's, you know, like football, where it's just one game more often not the better team will win because in just one game, but since the sample is increased to either three, five or seven, there is that element of randomness in the probability. Okay. So I want to, I want to touch on the probability, like the randomness probability stuff, because to me, when you get into your, your, because there's underlying presuppositions because a lot of people take the randomness probability and then they try to translate it across like those large data sets. In the sense of, okay, well, when a guy's on a hot streak or whatever, well, that's just luck. It's like, well, is it really? Because if you, if you go with that assumption, then you're not going to look for any underlying mechanism that is causing right. that. And the question is, is to me, an ecological approach explains why a guy is hot. And then the question is, is when we're, we're in a cold slump or whatever it is, like, how do we get you back into that? 
And then there are other there are other things too of like, well, he's just hitting it really hard and he's just getting really unlucky because it's going to guys. And you're like, well, maybe we need to train him to hit it not at guys. <laughs> like I and, and yeah. if you don't if you if you're going with this like luck assumption that hitting is just luck because it's hard, which it is, and mm-hmm. I don't think maybe you can hit the ball with precision to to wherever you want on the field. I think you there's enough evidence to demonstrate that you can hit it to an area of the field, sure. you know, like given like, I mean, and so to me, this is where your, your underlying um, assumptions will drive what you think is possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, for sure. Especially in baseball batting. Jesus, if, it, if there wasn't an element of skill involved, it wouldn't be different, differently skilled, you know, batsmen, right? Like, People would all basically, on average, over a season, end up with about the same batting ranking, right? So well, there's clearly yeah. there's clearly something going on where different people are better able to do different things. Yeah, for sure. And as a psychologist, as soon as you see any sort of pattern like that, you know, as a scientist, the first question is, oh, why is it, what what's what's pulling you away from everything being being even? Well, there must be something going on. You know, look, there's plenty of work trying to figure out what that is, right? Um, part of the problem is, of course, it's focused on things like it's focused on boring stuff like visual acuity or reaction time or all those kinds of things, right? Where it actually needs to be what we actually know is that behavior is behavior emerges from the collective of constraints that are operating on you at the moment. Some of those you bring with you, some of those are imposed on you. Um, and it's how they play out over time, right? So. Um, as you're trying to do the thing, that's that's where behavior comes from. So, yeah, the big problem has always been going to look for that enduring feature of the person that you might be able to improve, right? Um, whereas it's obviously more complicated than that. All right, Baker, you've been very silent for for most of this. I'm curious if you have anything that you would like to add um, and how you would like to perturb the the discussion. <laughs> no, I've been enjoying being a passenger. This has been, been a great conversation. But to me, like one thing I've been thinking about a ton as you guys talk, and I've been thinking a lot about this, is the idea of like a skill versus like an action capacity or capability, whichever way you want to frame that, because that's a conversation I've been having a lot with a lot of my coworkers is are we building skills, which to me, that's more of an interaction process. So we're actually interacting with the environment versus just like this capacity or this capability where hitting the ball hard is probably more of that versus skill is actually alive in an environment with fielders, with the hitter and actually doing what you want to do, which is get hits, get on base, score runs and kind of bridging that gap where I think the capacity or the capability is easy to measure skill. On the other hand, hasn't been quite as easy to measure. And I've been me being in the pitching space. That's the same thing where I think the majority of the time we'll spend working on throwing harder working on throwing different pitches with better metrics based on whatever model we're chasing versus is that actually skill where we put it into context and actually it lives within the environment. Are we getting out? Are we, are we throwing pitches that is producing outs and preventing runs, which is what we're trying to do um, and trying to get to more measurements on that front. And that's been a lot of my headspace. Um, not that I'm good with the analytics side, but that's where I've been thinking a lot about. Yeah. The metrics thing. Yeah. It's a really interesting and challenging problem is coming up with metrics, metrics of skill. That's a really nice way to frame it, actually. And that's definitely, honestly, it's like it, it harks back to what I was saying earlier about analytics and thinking about what to do with all those numbers. 
Um, so it's definitely been on my mind as well because it is it is hard, right? I can I can measure this. You know, you can measure a pitch speed and see if that number goes up. That's really easy. But a, you know, measuring whether or not the pitcher threw a pitch that was the kind of pitch that was likely to get that batter out is a more complicated question. It's the, it's the more interesting question, right? Like when it comes to, you know, counts as decision-making, you know, what, what's a good decision? Well, sometimes it's not the fastball that gets the player out. It's the it's the slow one or the curvy one or the spinning one or something, right? So what constitutes a good decision, you're right, I think, I think is, a, is a very sort of a high – it's it, it's a high dimensional problem, right? There's, you have to be, you have to measure and assess quite a few different things. And part of the equation is not, remember, it's not just up to the pitcher. Part of it is up to how the batter is able and their ability to, you know, the pitcher could just produce an absolute beautiful pitch that everything's perfect. And, you know, right batter on the right day puts it over the fence because that's just where they were living in that particular moment, right? So, um, and so does that count as a bad pitch? Well, yes, on one dimension, but also maybe not on some other dimensions. And so you have to start thinking about these things in the, yeah. So yes, right. That, that issue of, of developing metrics of skill. Um, like I say, I, I, I'm optimistic in the sense that I think it's possible. And I think that the systems that are being produced right now to generate <coughs> metrics can be adapted. I think the data is there to ask more sensible questions. I really am optimistic that that's possible. But it's hard to figure out exactly what the question is. And it's especially difficult given that what, yeah, what counts as skill is, is a complicated one. So, so for example, right, so I've just been working on a paper, some data I collected a while back, uh, on targeted long distance throwing, actually. Uh, and I'm, I use it to study affordance perception, perception of target affordances. And we're using this analysis called uncontrolled manifold analysis, which is just a, it's a mathematical way of decomposing variability and performance. Uh, and the basic idea is this. Um, I, so I ask you, I measure you throwing a tennis ball to hit a target 20 times. And I measure, you know, measure various joint angles and things like that. And I get you to do effectively the same thing 20 times in a row. <clears throat> Um, but of course, what we know is you don't actually ever quite do the same thing. You, it's repetition without repetition is the rule, right? So you'll produce basically the same throw, but it will never be exactly the same throw because it cannot be. That's just, that's just one of the rules. And also for, you know, for lots of reasons because of the way skilled action moves, redundancy and all those kinds of things that are going on in the system. Um, there's always variability, but that variability is organized around a kind of a, a central central uh, kind of uh, goal of what you're trying to achieve. So this uncontrolled manifold analysis is just a mathematical way of of mathematically characterizing what you think the goal the, the skill is trying to achieve, and then analyzing the variability in that movement into two components. One components are variability that stops you from achieving that goal, and variability that doesn't stop you from achieving that goal. And variability that doesn't stop you from achieving that goal is just kind of it's, that's kind of considered to be good variability, right? That's the variability that doesn't get in the way. That's just, that's just this redundant system coping with minor variations and what it's trying to achieve as a function of, you know, your balance is slightly different. You start from a slightly different position, et cetera. That's all healthy. That's good. That's adaptive, right? And so one of the things I like about this analysis, it turns out the, the details of exactly how you implement everything are quite interestingly complicated, but the basic idea is, First of all, it's trying to front up to the complexity of the situation. 
it's an analysis method that was designed to try and fully front up to the problem of what you were trying to study, namely that I could take all those joint measurements and compute an average and then compute deviation from that average, but that average is meaningless, right? The interesting is, isn't what did people do on average? The interesting thing is, how's the variability in their movement organized? And that's quite an interesting question. So what you end up with is if you get, as, as people get better at producing these throws, more and more of the, there's always variability. So you have some amount of variability. But as you get better, more and more of the a higher and higher proportion of that variability lives within the uncontrolled manifold, lives within the space where it doesn't affect the outcome. And variability that does affect the outcome, your skilled your skill development is around organizing your movement so that that variability doesn't happen anymore. Right. So <clears throat> there's the right. So why am I talking about this? You're trying to develop some measures and metrics to get a sense of how skillful was a given movement, right? And a movement is skillful is if the on this account is if the variability in that movement that you can't get away from, if that if the variability is organized so as to make it so that you still achieve the goal, that's purposeful, that's intentional, that's flexibility, that's adaptability, right? That that variability is good. It's allowing you to cope with the little moment-to-moment -moment variations of stuff. <clears throat> so what you do is you if if you measure that and your good variability is going up, then what you've got potentially is a metric that tells you a little bit of something about skill, as you were talking about it a second ago. Now, the details of that, it gets very complicated. You know, the maths isn't that hard, but it's fiddly to measure, and there are constraints in terms of how much you can do in terms of mucking about, and it's hard to characterize. Like, you know, I've got people throwing tennis balls to a static target, right, and I can characterize the, the details of the static target if, if, if I had that target moving, my uncontrolled manifold analysis mathematically would get complicated, right? But at least in principle, there are ways of trying to take the kind of data and ask, interrogate it with skill-based questions rather than, and skill-based questions are process questions, not did you throw the ball or how fast did you throw the ball, but how did you get there, right? And the, and the, the annoying thing about those process based questions is because of redundancy and things like that, there's no single correct answer. There's no correct form. There are, there's, there are, there's, there's techniques that are better than other techniques, right? My baseball throwing techniques probably not that good relative to someone who's been practicing for a while. So there is, out of all the range of possible things I can do with my arm, only some of them are good at pitching a baseball, right? So there, there are issues around that. But within that space, <clears throat> there's a lot of wiggle room around what counts as a good pitch. And part of what counts as a good pitch is what are you trying to achieve with that pitch um, and so on. So all these questions, right, that question, basically the question you're asking about metrics of skill is a really good question. It's a really important question. It's a thing that's been really much on my mind <clears throat> as I've been trying to use this UCM method as a metric of skill specifically skilled uh, interaction and skilled perception and interaction and engagement with the affordances of the target to be hit. Um, so it's there, the possibilities are there, the tools are there, we're, we're getting there, there's, there's ways of going at this. Uh, and I think that it's worth doing, but it is hard. And at the end of the day, I couldn't tell you what constituted a good throw. So I'm not, I'm not at this point entirely sure 
what this data would do to change a coach's behavior, for example, and change what the coach would do. Now, I'm not saying that that, that doesn't exist. I just don't know what that would look like right now because it's more complicated. You can't, it's not just about you need your player to throw faster. It's you need your player to show a different kind of adaptability. And that's how you can't verbally tell someone how to do that, right? This is again where the constraints based approach, I think, really starts to kick in is because that variability, what constitutes good variability is, is the, is the variability as the arm moves through space, is that successfully navigating the constraints that are currently on offer? That's effectively the question, right? So if you want to change how that variability is organized, the actually, the only way to do it is to alter the constraints and see what happens. So the constraints-based methodology is actually the only way to tackle this potential skill-based question. You can't, you, like, it's not at all clear that you could verbally construct your way or, you know, to, to doing that, et cetera. So, but it's harder. Absolutely, it's harder. And I don't know what, like, it's not, like, I couldn't turn that into something I could sell somebody, right? I guess um, I was going to say for for me, let's, if we're to go to the practical, because I think that's that's been some of the uh, the criticism. It's like, oh, this is all theory. This is all theory. Well, to me, I think you can take that what you just said and make it practical. Because I don't know, Andrew, if you've seen the uh, the logo that I use for this podcast. It's it's trying to represent the uncontrolled manifold uh, oh, analysis, okay, cool. but uh, I didn't quite get enough dots uh, off the line. But anyways, my my. My thought there, because it to me, I've seen the potential of this from from the very beginning, and like uh-huh. now that I've been thinking about it a little bit more, as you're talking there, to me, the outcome that you would measure it against is outs. Like, yeah. and does it move you towards a, an out state? And this that that last piece makes it a little bit more complicated. Like, does it is it moving you towards an out state? But uh-huh. the way that I conceptually understand it is that it just includes more data points. So it, you. As I understand too, like when you're doing an uncontrolled manifold analysis, you are, you're constrained in terms of what you're looking at. So you might actually have to do multiple mm-hmm. ones if you mm-hmm. want to get a better or to, to see more of the reality of what's going on. And mm-hmm. so in, in this scenario, you probably, you might have to have a few, like, cause like in baseball, as you progress through the count, things change. And mm-hmm. so like, yes. you know, uh, yes. Robert, Robert will do different sort of analysis that will show you the, the changes as the count progresses. Yeah. Um, and so similarly to me, I think that's, that's how you would build this, but you would, you would have a top line thing that would give you, cause really what you're looking for, cause to me, as I'm thinking about this, even from an ecological approach, like I'm looking for something that is specifying enough to then pull me a layer deeper into more and more specifying, but like, cause maybe we could get into this idea too, of like specifying information. And is there a difference between specifying information and higher order variables? Because to me, there's, there's layers of specifying information. And if you can move to a higher form of specifying information, which to me is a higher order variable, mm-hmm. you begin to then that higher order variable then gives you all the other lower specifying stuff. And maybe that lower specifying stuff mm-hmm. is actually context specific. Mm-hmm. And so like the higher order variable actually points you to what is specifying in your environment. And so how all this comes back is to actually how we view and utilize data. Cause it's going back to like what you talked about before. Like what does this data mean? Like you always have to answer that question of like, okay, what does this mean? And what do I then do with it? And so what you're trying to do with the uncontrolled manifold analysis is you're actually making, you're simplifying it. You're asking a simple question of 
did this meet what I needed? Yes or no. And you mm-hmm. can actually create probably a score for like, how close are you to that line? Because mm-hmm. like what's, what's interesting to me is just like, when you look at it visually, it looks a lot like the traditional linear models that you're actually used to looking at. You know, mm-hmm. if you were to like, uh, look at something, you actually want things to clump towards the line and in an uncontrolled mm-hmm. manifold analysis, that's actually what you want to show improved skill. You have a better fittedness to that line. Um, mm-hmm. if you have it tied to the outcome that, that actually matters. And so if we're talking about pitching, the outcome that you're looking for is, are you getting an out? The, the challenge with pitching actually is it's actually simpler for hitting because hitting it's like the, the answer is, did you hit it? Yes or no. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could make it more nuanced if you want to get towards more of the skill element of like, did you hit it well enough to get you a hit? There's a difference mm-hmm. between like asking the question, did you hit it? And then you can look at something like the, the temporal constraint, because for me, this is where what you highlighted uh, with the uncontrolled and manifold analysis, as I understood, is like, oh, cool. You just have to get the answer. Like if you just pick a random number, like five. How many different ways are there to get to number five? Yeah, and the sure. answer is infinite. There's an infinite number, even though that's con- like, so for example, if you're in a time constraint, there is a constraint in terms of like the, uh, how you do it, but the number actually within a constraint within an area is actually infinite, right? Be- because of the fact that you can use decimal places, like you basically go to infinity. So even within a small constrained space, you can get inf- infinity. I don't know that that's probably more philosophical than what we need to get <laughs> right now. But I, I find that fascinating that you can get infinity through that uh, small well, constrained the, area. I mean, yeah. I mean, that's the, that's the essence of the, the, the kind of the ecological insight that underpins the uncontrolled manifold analysis is this notion of motor abundance, right? <clears throat> and repetition without repetition. The idea that, <clears throat> that your body, the system that you're trying to control always has more degrees of freedom than it needs in order to achieve any given task. Um, it, it just it just does, right? That's just always the case. And given that that's always the case, that means there's always more than one way to do whatever it is you're trying to do. Um, and technically, there's an, an infinite number of ways of doing it. Although <clears throat> in practice, right, it's not infinite, but in, you know, in, in, in principle it is. And the, and the whole point, but the whole point of the uncontrolled manifold analysis is just to take that insight and then also to identify but sure, there's an infinite number of ways I can do stuff, but there's a lot of, actually, there's a lot of organization and structure going on and how you actually go about navigating that space, right? So there's a lot of things that you never try. There are options if you ever needed them. <clears throat> and one of the things that you see is that if you, so for example, you do uncontrolled manifold analysis, you get people to do, to try and do the same thing, say 20 times, right? So I got people to throw to hit a target five, 10 or 15 meters away, 20 times. And so, uh, and the reason you do that is that you need some sense of the spread of people, of, of what the repetition without repetition is. They're trying to do the same thing and they don't do it exactly the same the whole time. So you need to map out that variability. But then you get into the interesting question. One of the things I've run into is, yeah, well, what, what actually constitutes the same thing? Um, and so throwing pitching a pitch when it's no outs versus one out versus two outs might not count as the same thing. In fact, it almost certainly doesn't, right? And this is where you have to start thinking about what, you know, what's the various, what's the coalition of constraints that are currently operating in order to shape that particular behavior from which things are emerging in real time. 
Um, so it's not the case that a picture just comes up and delivers the same picture all the time, right? That context shifts. And sometimes the context is something like something to do with the rules of the game. And sometimes the context is something, uh, something more sort of physical. The, the, is the batter left or right-handed? Are they tall? Are they short? Are they bigger? Are they short, uh, you know, bigger? Are they little? Um, uh, all those kinds of constraints that you can alter as well. Um, and those constraints then again, those, you know, those shifting constraints means that the thing you did a minute ago is now no longer whatever it is you're going to do next isn't an example of the same thing. Um, in quite an important sort of sense. And this is where, this is, this is the essence. This is kind of getting to the nitty gritty of why the ecological approach thinks drills are done, right? Because drills, drills is an attempt to pretend that sports is doing the same thing over and over again, which it's not fundamentally, right? It's about skillful engagement with the current constraints of the environment. Now, what you end up doing is something that might look very similar over and over again. Each pitch is going to look very similar. It's going to look like a pitch and it's not going to look like, say, a cricket delivery, right? Because so, so it's not random <clears throat> what you're doing. It is constrained, but it lives within a bigger space than people give it credit for, right? The, the pitching movement. <clears throat> and so trying to do the same thing over and over again is not necessarily the best way to train something because what you're actually trying to do is you're trying to teach people how to skillfully engage with those constraints so that they can shape what they're doing to best meet those demands, right? And again, the essence, you know, for all its limitations and for all the various sort of complexity of applying it, things like the uncontrolled manifold analysis, they're an attempt to front up to that reality and to quantify it and to organize it in a way that you can then talk about it scientifically. Um, so, you know, at the very least, it's an attempt to, to engage with the question on its own front, which means that the numbers that come out of it are closer metrics of skill than other things. Now, the, the thing that actually kind of motivated my initial tweet about being grumpy about sports science just collecting data came from reading some UCM papers, right? So where people were doing UCM on a task and then just finding some differences in their UCM numbers, and that was it. I did this task, I did that task, the UCM number was higher in this one than that one. Done. That, that was it. Like, and I'm like, it frustrated me because you've got this tool that actually has the capability to tell you something more than that. And the only thing anybody seemed interested in was collecting some data, applying the method and showing a difference. I was like, okay. Uh, so what, like using, using that as an example, uh, what more could you have drawn out of it? Um, I mean, like at a, at a conceptual level. Well, the thing I'm trying to do right now, which I'm bashing my head against, I don't know if it's working, but I'm going to give it a go. Um, is I'm trying to connect uncontrolled manifold analysis to the perception of affordances specifically, right? So I'm trying to show that the <clears throat> that the manifold, the thing that defines how the variability in the movement is organized, I'm trying to figure out whether or not I can show that that's being generated, or that that's being structured by the perception of the affordances of the target to the pet. So I, I'm, I'm less interested in was there a difference in the UCM scores between when people threw to five meters to 10 meters to 15 meters? And I'm more interested in trying to show does, does my formal analysis of the affordances of the, of the target provide me with a good decomposition of the variance, right? Am I, am I getting somewhere? Am I producing an uncontrolled manifold analysis that looks like I'm heading at the, what it is the system is organizing itself with respect to? Whether or not that's actually going to work or not, I don't know, but I, I've got to 
draft of a paper attempting to do it, and I'm still going to work through it. But that's for, for me, that's what I want to do. And again, that's me attempting to use a method of generating metrics that is at least in theory up to the challenge of fronting up to the actual complexity of the problem. I'm trying to use that tool to answer a theoretically driven question about the perception of affordances and the role of that in skilled action. So again, the reason why I'm doing it, and as far as I can tell why it's never occurred to anybody else to do this, which it always seemed like the obvious thing to do to me, that's the other thing. That's why I was quite surprised that nobody else seems to have done this, at least not in the way I'm sort of thinking of applying it. Um, that question makes complete sense to me given my understanding of what skill acquisition and skill skill performance is from that ecological kind of understanding. Um, but that's where the question came from. And I think one of the reasons why no one else seems to have done it is that they're not coming from there. They're just looking at the numbers and looking at the differences, right? And that's the that's the issue again. And like I say, I don't know if I've got it right yet, but at least I've got, I've got a sensible first swing at it. Um, yeah. And so I guess that's why I wanted to follow up with at least my proposal of what I at least understand. Because to me, the, the entry point is to, in a way, work within the current model of the system of giving you an indicator, good or bad. Because I think mm -hmm. this is a simple, like it's a simple starting place, right? If you just even boil it back, everybody wants simplicity. You know, like what do I initially, because you know, I have a little kid, like I'm in some ways trying to give him value judgments. This is good. This is bad. Now I have to help him understand in situation of like, you know, oftentimes I'll say things like not right now, because I don't want him to think that whatever it is, is categorically bad all the time. Yeah. But I want him to understand that in this context, this is not good. And so in the same way of like, I think, you know, basically like, cause the first, cause when you, when you're, when you're overwhelmed with information, you want a simple value judgment to get you moving. And so mm -hmm. that's, that's where I go back to like when we're, when we're designing, if we're to use an uncontrolled manifold analysis. Okay. So for, for, for very specifics in the new Hawkeye system that is working in baseball is similar to what you were talking about with football. Like they're able to, especially with the pitchers, I even think too, with the hitters is they, they're able to get a ton of kinematic data. So now that you have all this kinematic data of like how the pitcher is moving and now interacting with the problem, mm -hmm. and now you have it tied to an outcome because every pitch produces an outcome. So yep. if you can, like in, in some ways, right, your your high level uh, number or analysis is going to actually compress a lot of things together. So you're going to actually lose some of the specificity to get a more generalized thing. But mm -hmm. it's it really when you when you're trying to simplify things. To make it more manageable, you know, to to make the the complexity and all the information manageable and to constrain to afford, you have to go back towards like what's your what's your overarching goal? Like where are you trying to go go essentially? And so if the goal is to trying to win, like this is why everybody breaks it down into like okay, win this pitch, because this is how you move the thing forward. And so to me, when I'm designing this th this initial metric is to tell you, okay, are they better at overall at the skill of moving you towards this end goal? Mm -hmm. And if you're the, the person who has more ways of doing that in, in theory, to me is, is one more skillful. And regardless of the situations, he's going to be able to perform over a wider range of situations. Yeah. And partially too, you can see that the system is because too, like what you do is you take 
you take measurements over time and you look at the direction of travel. This is the whole mm-hmm. thing, like what we we're talking about before, of like how it practically layers is like, okay, if you can track this of like, okay, what's the current state of the system? How much abundance is it showing? And does that abundance, you could say, decrease over whatever time scale you want to look at mm-hmm. the course of a game, the course of a season, um, mm-hmm. you know, like in the past, using his past body of work to predict the future. I mean, Everything to me is about like timescales and what you want to look at it because some things, information becomes more relevant. You could say this is kind of like weather forecasting, right? The prediction is a lot better the closer you are to the time of the event, Mm -hmm. but the further out you go, the more, the more, the less accurate your forecasting is. I mean, because that's, that's part of what the analytics teams are doing. Because if you're looking at scouting and all this sort of stuff and how much you're going to pay a player, all this sort of stuff, your ability to get a good, because to me, this is the whole in, in decision making, right? We go with the best, the first best available. We don't go with the, the most optimal, the most logical, whatever. It's the Mm -hmm. first thing that shows up is usually what we go with. And so to me, that, that shows that getting a close approximation to get you going is actually how we, we do a lot of things mm-hmm. like we don't, we don't need to be exact. Like, is this to me, like if we were to get into uh, perspective control, that's exactly what perspective control is doing. It's getting you moving towards your, your end goal. And mm-hmm. you're just simply saying like, okay, is if I keep doing what I'm doing, am I going to end up at my end goal? And if not, yes. what do I need to do to get back to trying to meet my end goal? And, and so I mean, to me, it's if you're using an analogy, it's like a heat-seeking m- missile, right? Like, it it just tracks wherever it's going. There's a few different layers there. So, <clears throat> in terms of <clears throat> precision and how much you actually need to know, <clears throat> so the baseball scout, it might be the case that some of these metrics that sufficiently correlate with something are sufficiently informative. <clears throat> that it will enable them to select one person rather than another or focus attention on that person rather than that person. And that the, the number that they're using is sufficiently informative that, it, that that, that using it to guide that decision works well enough to make it worthwhile doing at that scale. But that's, that's, that's one kind of decision making context, right? Then there's the decision making context on, you know, the athlete on the field on the day, right? And there's questions around, how that works and how best to coach that. And then there's the other question, you know, from my question as a scientist is I'm trying to figure out and show as clearly as possible and test between different possible mechanisms for how that behavior happened to come out. And so it really matters to me <clears throat> to get it as right as possible because I have to, I have, I'm kind of trying to zero in on that detail. Um, but just because I'm trying to zero in on that detail in order to achieve what I'm trying to achieve doesn't mean that zeroing in on that detail is the thing that the player needs to do and it might not be the thing that the scout needs to do. So there are there there is an issue of these metrics being being path, you know, being um sometimes being good enough is fine. That's part of it. Um the other thing that's lurking in there is this is a is, is a very important notion of task specificity, right? Is that when I'm trying to figure out how things actually work, one of the big limitations, one of the big challenges and of the reality of the situation is that behavior is deeply task specific, right? What you do in this context, it doesn't take very much of a shift of context to get you behaving quite differently. Uh, and that's one of the big kind of 
it's a huge pain, quite frankly, because it makes doing the science, it gets back to that question of, you know, when I'm doing science, I need to ask people to do, try and do the same thing over and over again, at least a few times, because looking at that variability and those, you know, that tendencies and all that sort of stuff is how I go and figure out what's going on. But it turns out it's really hard to ask that question, which is fine as a mover, as the person trying to move and do the things, right? You know, it doesn't, you know, having that room to maneuver doesn't, isn't, isn't so much of a disaster, but it's a pain for me as the scientist. Um, and it may, and again, yeah, anyway, so these, and then on the issue of perspective control versus these things, right, that's the other thing. From the point of view of a scout, right, what they're trying to do is they're trying to, explicitly they're trying to predict. They're actually, they're trying to predict future performance. They're in a situation where something like perspective control simply can't happen because they're creating a situation where they're trying to predict something in the future that's disconnected from events a little bit uh, going on now. Whereas prospective control is what happens when an organism tries to interact with its current environment in a way in which some of the things it needs to interact with are in the future. Um, and it turns out that from the organism point of view, well, ecologically, we argue that prediction isn't an option. That actually the only option you've got is prospective control. The only thing you can do is interact with the environment now in ways that then enable you to achieve things in the future. And one of the things that we've revealed is that it's possible to do that, right? It's possible to interact with what's currently going on in a way such that you end up reliably producing some future outcome without ever having to explicitly know what that future outcome is exactly going to look like. But again, there's this difference of trying to make, of an organism trying to make a decision in the moment based so that it can control its perception action systems versus the very distinct from that scenario of trying to take some numbers and use those to explicitly make some prediction about something. It's a very different setup, right? And again, that's the other thing is that they're not the same, which means that the, the requirements they have for the data that they use are going to be different, for example. To, um, to, uh, Jump back just a little bit because I, I have this bad habit of throwing too much out there. Like I'll ask a question and then I'll carry mm -hmm. on onto something else. What is your thought though on to, to close, to tie up that, that last question of, okay, using an uncontrolled manifold analysis to give you a score, you could say, right? Because like if, if, if you have a tighter fit to that line, it, you, you know, cause, cause that sounds to me as I was listening to you criticize the, that one paper, that's kind of what they were doing, right? It, is that a fair interpretation kind of, of what yeah. you, of like, they're just looking at the, the, the fittedness between the uncontrolled manifolds. Yeah. And, and, and so to me though, it's like, if I wanted to measure skill, that would be one way of measuring it based upon whatever it is that I tie it to. Yeah. And so whether I tie it to like, the batted batted ball outcome, like did you hit the ball, yes or no? Um, mm -hmm. and then and or did I did this move me towards an out? I, yeah. I, I think that's what you have to do with pitching and it makes it much more complicated, but you could just simply say in in situ because there's just too many pitches to because in, in which um the the potential of an out is is limited because it requires a batter to swing and yeah. or you have to be an account that with basically meaning two strikes that allows that that next pitch has the possibility to result in an out with no swing. Mm -hmm. And so like, yeah. that's where to me, it's more of a question of like, you could probably capture, does this move you towards getting, getting an out? Because if you throw balls into the strike zone, that's moving you towards getting an out. And, nice. and so like, it's, it's sufficient to, to move the thing forward. 
because if, if guys throw more strikes in a general sense, Robert, you, you're going to have to speak to this more, but if you throw more strikes in a general sense, you probably have a, it, it's, it's a close enough correlation to seeing you move towards being a better pitcher because you're going to get more outs. Like you're going to have a lower ERA. You're going to have a lower yeah. uh, whip and these different, these different traditional metrics. Cause where I go at the end of, okay. So I need to stop before I do that thing again. So what are your thoughts on um, using the uncontrolled manifold analysis in that way? Is that an appropriate way to use it or does that um, violate some, some fundamental principles? Um, I'd have to think some more about this. I don't, I think the underlying <clears throat> sort of motivations for the uncontrolled manifold analysis, the, 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 the essential problem that that analysis is trying to tackle, namely this issue of motor redundancy, <clears throat> motor abundance, um, the idea that there's more than one way to do any given movement and that you're trying to understand what, you know, how people go about organizing those movements and coping with that, with that possibility. I think, first of all, I think you could probably throw UCM at this kind of data as long as you were careful. One of the things I've learned in trying to use the uncontrolled manifold analysis, and one of the original purposes of it was to test control hypotheses. So what you do is you take the same movement data and you decompose it with respect to different potential outcomes, right? So you, and to try and figure out which one produces the better decomposition of the variance, right? And the idea is that, uh, so, you know, so you're, if I've got joint angles for a throw, for example, um, I could decompose that with respect to the release velocity, or I could decompose that with respect to the position of the hand at various points in the trajectory. And the idea is that you're, you decompose the variance according to different potential candidate outcomes to see which one it looks like the variance is being organized with respect to maintaining, right? And so, uh, so sometimes, so, so what you'll find is that sometimes you'll, you'll try and decompose the variance relative to some variable that you think the system is controlling and you'll end up with nothing. It just, it doesn't look like the system cares about that thing at all. And then sometimes you'll find that it is in fact looking for something like that. So one of the things that I found, like the original motivation in the original Schultz and Scherner paper was explicitly about testing uh, hypotheses about what you think is the thing the system is trying to organize itself with respect to. What's it trying to achieve? And you can look to see the different proportions of how good the decomposition is. That's a thing that's kind of trailed away in the UCM literature. People don't use it to test hypotheses anymore. They just apply the method and report what they found. Um, and then the other thing I found in my data is that it gets complicated because actually I've, you know, doing the decomposition against different potential uh, 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 performance variables, multiple variables sometimes look like they're working and it's hard to tell which ones the system's actually uh, working towards and why. And so it's, so the moral of the story is I think the underlying logic of the, of the UCM is the right, it, the underlying logic of it really forces you to ask the right kinds of questions and can certainly be used I think, to guide on those ways. Um, but then the other question, like whether or not you could actually just actually do that with the numbers, I don't know. I'd have to spend a little bit of time thinking about it. Um, but the, but the underlying, the UCM embodies the motor abundance hypothesis, right? It's an analysis technique that literally builds into itself the assumption that there is repetition without repetition because of the way movement systems are organized relative towards what they're trying to control. And so that understanding, that like going at the question with that theoretical layer is how you get the better questions, I think, out of your data. And I was just thinking about the other thing as well. It gets back to the question of what counts as a good pitch. 
right? So sure, you could just pitch strikes all the time. You could just try and do everything you can to make the pitch go through the strike zone every single time. You could do that and it would probably work out okay. But that's a fairly rigid solution to the problem of becoming a good pitcher, right? So I always think about the kind of sports player, that, the players that we always really look at and go, that person's a, just a master of their sport. That person is an amazing athlete. They're the ones, they're not the ones who can reliably produce something. They're the ones who are the most adaptable. They're the ones who, who never seem to get phased, right? They're the ones that you can't throw off because whatever you throw at them, they have a solution, right? Those are the ones we look at and go, that's a person that really understands their sport, right? That's an amazing athlete. That's an incredible athlete. And there's all kinds of examples. You know, there's players over the years of lots of different sports with those kinds of examples. And I think if you, like, we all kind of know what those people look like and we all value those kinds of people, right? You could look at the, at the pitcher who only ever tries to throw to the exact same place in the strike zone every single time. And they might on average do okay in terms of outs just because of the way baseball works. But you might not ever look at them and go, man, that's an amazing pitcher. You might go, they're a good, reliable pitcher, but they're not the one to pull out the magical play or to, or to just create something, right? And those are the ones, and, and that gets back to the question of skill, right? Skill is not being able to do the same thing over and over again. Skill is being able to do the right thing at the right time. <clears throat> and what that is, and that means being skillfully uh, coupled to your environment. You have to be flexibly and adaptively coupled to your environment so that what you do is constrained by the task demands and by your capabilities, uh, but constrained in that kind of more, in, in that flexible and adaptive kind of way. And it's capturing that flexibility, right? It's hard, but there are numbers. I mean, if you really want to go at it, there are, there are numbers for characterizing the behaviors of dynamical systems that tell you things about coupling strength and that tell you things about, you know, is you, the stability of your system versus the, you know, there's, you know, there's various numbers you can produce that tell you things like that that are diagnostic, a bit more diagnostic about, about the, about the kind of system that you have. Right? Do you have a rigid system that's not very flexible? Or do you have one that's really just riding that edge? Or do you have one that's too unstable and it's trying too many wacky things? Right? You, you can, you can, you know, you can, you can quantify these things, but you just have to ask different questions every day. So how would you tell me more about this coupling idea? Because like this, uh, being able to quantify that, because for mm -hmm. example, I know, well, I know there are some people who are trying to figure out how to better quantify an ecological approach. And to me, that is one thing because, you know, it, it gets thrown. This is where I recognize my limitations in terms of my understanding. Like, I know what I haven't interacted yet. I know that I've touched the tip of an iceberg, right? Like, I know certain things exist, but I don't know the mm -hmm. details of how they exist <laughs> and how they work, right? right. Like, in and I think for, for other people in the baseball world, they don't even know these things exist. Like, yeah, exactly. I, I think that's, that's where, you know, I know I, I saw some organizations like looking to hire people and it's like, okay, that's a start. But if you don't even have a clue for how to even utilize this person, they're just going to sit in a corner generating ideas that basically almost go to no one. And like, it's, it's, it's going to be based upon human psychology on which ones actually take. 
And like, yeah. it's, to me, sometimes what actually takes is actually, a, uh, it gets, uh, twisted sometimes. Like I'll, mm-hmm. I'll just use the example of like the constraint led approach. Uh, somebody in the baseball industry popularized the constraint led approach, but they had a misunderstanding. Like they saw the potential of it and then used it to fit their, 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 uh, technical <laughs> model into it. Yes. So like yes. you constrain to force what you want and then you open up, you take constraints off later on. And it's like, that's not how, like, that's, that's not, that's a fundamental misunderstanding of the constraint led approach. Like right. we constrain to afford, not constrain to get what I want. And then I take the constraints off and then you, you yeah. maintain that. Cause that, that's just there a traditionalist always, ap- approach. There are, yes. Well, there are always constraints, right? And if there aren't constraints, then you don't get any structure in your behavior, right? So, you know, this is, this is where, you know, look, if you're going looking for numbers, right? People have been studying nonlinear dynamical systems, physical systems for a long time and figuring out ways of quantifying their behavior, right? So, you know, so for example, um, you know, there's a, there's a, a classic chemical reaction. I can't remember the name of it. It's named after a couple of Russian chemists that figured it out. And it's this weird oscillating chemical reaction, basically, where you mix up these various elements, um, and they, chemically react and turn into one thing and then they chemically then they they that reverses and the exact time it it just it it does this by itself effectively right and it oscillates and so um there's a bunch of different you know there's this and 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 that that happens and the details of how that happened for example emerge under the constraints of the various tasks so the size of the container matters, right? If you put it in a, put these liquids into a really big container where there's no, you know, where the, where the liquid doesn't brush up against the edges, for example, then you don't get these kinds of reactions. Um, the temperature of it obviously matters, how much you put in, with all these kind of physical constraints that you can vary. But basically you just get this kind of interesting nonlinear, and, and you get this nonlinear kind of behavior out of it. But there's plenty of ways of mathematically characterizing the behavior of those. There's numbers that tell you things about you know, how these things are, how the various components are coupled to one another and, 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 and rates of reaction and all kinds of things that are just kind of more dynamical numbers that enable you to, to assess these things. Um, so one of the things that the ecological approach does is because we're, because we're going, the ecological approach, you know, Gibson's big insight was to spend a large amount of time characterizing the problem faced by a theory of perception and action, right? Um, and that's that's one of his major contributions is that he didn't just jump in trying to figure out how it worked. He spent a great deal of time trying to figure out how to six, correctly characterize the nature of the problem that we're trying to study. And because we did that, if you start with a particular understanding of the problem, instead of, like I say, it just gets back to the same old thing. Instead of just taking your data and jamming it through the analysis technique that you know, ecological psychologists have been at the forefront of going and looking for numbers that are appropriate for studying this kind of system once you know what kind of system it is. And it's like, well, and, and the immediate thing is, well, you know, there's no point in running an ANOVA on it because it's just assuming some sort of linearity. What I actually want to know is something that needs, I need a different kind of number. And so we go, oh, I wonder if anybody else has ever done anything like this. And then you go, well, who studies dynamical systems? Well, there's a bunch of physicists and chemists, 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 chemists that have been doing these various things. Let's go see if they've got any numbers. And so we go looking for other, other numbers from other fields. Um, and we're quite happy to go grab them. And there's, there's tons of them. And, you know, it's one of the things I would quite like actually the field to get a little bit more organized around is producing, uh, like this, this expertise is very distributed throughout the field, I think. 
and different people are, have different expertise. And I, it would be quite nice to kind of consolidate that, have a bit more of a, to provide people like yourself, for example, with a bit of a path of, oh, we went looking for a number that enabled us to ask and answer this kind of question. And we found this one, this one, and this one, so that you can just to, when you come along and have that kind of question, you've got a slightly shorter search. Um, I think that would certainly be something that would be useful. Um, but the moral of the story is you, what you do is you, the, you, this is, you have to do what Gibson did. You have to start correctly characterizing the problem and fronting up to the full complexity of it. And then you ask questions about how you go about measuring it in order to figure out how it works, right? You, as long as you do it in that order, then you're asking, you're, you're at least going in the right way. I mean, cause I, I think that's where the, the challenge is. Like, I mean, we're a minute or an hour 40 into this and like, you just hit on it, like a core concept. Cause I've been thinking about like, what are the core concepts that, that really drive an ecological approach? And I think a lot of people, they like one misconception I, I I've seen somebody put out there for, for what an ecological approach is, is, Oh, you just make it more game-like. Yeah. Or, and I'm just like, well, it's not actually what an ecological approach is like. It's about the performer environment relationship mediated by information, like this information or energy exchange, like, and it's mutually it's, reciprocal. Yes. And it's that that then motivates, oh, some game-like stuff might be a good idea, right? That's the trick, right? It wasn't let's go game-like and we dragged everything else along with it. It was going more game-like seems like the kind of, seems like it might be a better way of engaging with this kind of system. Right? Well, especially if the, the whole purpose is perception action coupling and uh the fact of attunement like to get that perception yeah. action coupling you need to be attuned well and then you also have to add in cal like this is where it's like i i struggle immensely to be able to deliver to somebody in a short simplistic way all these things because I, I i can't give you like if i just simply told you that first line uh organism environment relationship mediated by information reciprocal yeah. like that you you're leaving out this other huge element that doesn't get you from there to um more representative practice design. You need the attunement piece. And then you also need this calibration. Like all these things are layered in there. And yeah. this is where for me, it's like, I somehow need to be able to help people understand like the, the appeal of it. So to, to back up into maybe, I don't know what we want to close on. Cause I, I want to be respectful of your time because we could go on for, for, for quite a while here. Plus, plus these other guys ha may want to jump in with something. I mean, I do want to potentially hit on the whole, like, cause we got, we, we started touching on it and I, I took a different affordance and went backwards in time instead of going in the direction where we were at of your, you know, we're, we're talking about like predictive models, you know, yeah. for scouting and et cetera. So if these things exist and we use them, you know, to, to some, to some extent, like there's, there's utility in using them. Why is it inappropriate to then take that notion that because we use something like a predictive model and whatever, uh, for, to be able to do things in, in life and to make decisions and to base our actions on, why is that a poor use when it comes to how we, you know, begin to yeah. interact with like when it comes to sports and like, you know, because people have talked about like the brain is a prediction machine, like it's designed yeah. to predict. And I've even in the four E space, I've heard a little bit of like, well, the brain actually predicts something like its internal state yeah. or whatever. And so like it, and so I'm like, okay, I, I, I can see a little bit where you're going, but this is where I, I guess, again, 
I'm trying to, st- I'm yeah. as soon as you give an opening, somebody who is for a predictive model is going to stay there. And so that's yeah. where I'm like, how do you build a good case for perspective not, control right. versus. Here's, here's my take on that. <clears throat> Cause it's a good question. My take is that, yeah, sure. You can do prediction <clears throat> under certain circumstances, but the things you need to know <clears throat> and the things you need to be able to do in order to be able to do prediction are not the kinds of things that perceiving acting organisms are able to do when they're acting, right? So in order to be able to make, <clears throat> excuse me, in order to be able to make predictions as your baseball scout, you have to take a bunch of measures off, uh, off a person and then relate them to a bunch of, to a stored set of knowledge about a bunch of other things and how those things relate to future performance. <clears throat> and so the evidence shows that actually that's not what organisms do. The evidence actually shows that the, the evidence is very strong for prospective control, at least in the, in, you know, in, ongoing actual perception action loops, um, you don't see any, you don't you actually, when you go comparing these things, you see, you don't see any evidence of prediction. Why? Because the things that you need to be able to do to be able to predict, organisms can't do. Don't have, you don't have access to all that information. You don't have, and so. Can you give right. a concrete example for the naysayers? So, right, well, there's a, right, there's a concrete example. Oh, so my favorite concrete example, the, the fundamental sort of idea of prospective control is that, right, so say uh, the, the classic experiment for this uh, from 20 years ago or so is uh, you've got your hand, you're on a slider and you're moving it from side to side and your job is to intercept an incoming target, right? And so what you do is you have a look at the pattern of the movement as the, as the target's coming in. And you compare two, two possible ways of doing this. The prediction model is that you can see it coming. And so you predict where the thing is going to go and you move to there because why would you do anything else? If you successfully predicted where the thing's going to go and you want to intercept it, why would you do anything else? Right. So what you should do if you're predicting is simply move to where you predict the thing is going to go. Um, the prospect of control is about coupling yourself to an information variable. And if you have a look, you can, you can, if you, you can take a candidate information variable and you can plot out the value of that information variable over time. And what you can find is that that variable, you know, as it changes its value over time, as the thing approaches you, that variable tells you that you should be doing something. And so you get these two predictions. Either you go somewhere and, <laughs> and get ready to catch something or you move in response to the value of this variable. And one of the weird things about these nice interception tasks is that if you are doing prospective control, the information, the way the information variables change over time, you often end up getting what's called a movement reversal required by the information variable where you overshoot where you need to be and you have to come back. And that's dictated just by the value of the information variable. Movement reversals are a dumb idea if you're, if you're doing prediction. Why would you, why would you predict go to the wrong place? Or, or why would you make a prediction, go to the wrong place and then have to come back to it, right? It takes too much time. And one of the one of the signatures of, pros- of the existence of prospective control is the fact that movement reversals show up all the time in interception tasks. Right, you can be doing a simple task like this in the lab. You can be a goalkeeper. Um, and so uh, Kathy Craig does a lot of really cool work around uh, goalkeepers in, in soccer, where if you watch a goalkeeper, they'll often go that way and then come back that way. Um, but good goalkeepers don't start moving until later, so that they wait until the information doesn't and until the information's gone past the point where it's going to require a, a reversal because it means that they can then move more quickly but then they have to move more quickly because they've got less time to respond so there's all kinds of interesting things 
So the basic, all the evidence showed basically you get a movement reversal if you are assembling your behavior in real time as a function of the constraints that you have available to you, right? And if you are, if you are assembling your, your, your behavior out of a series of constraints and as those constraints change and evolve over time, then that predicts a very particular way of getting to where you're going to go. Um, and the evidence, can, you know, reliably and regularly shows that that's what you're doing, right? Whereas if you're predicting, then you would do something different. And you get all kinds of examples about this. And the classic is the outfielder problem, right? How do you go about tracking a, and catching a, a, a fly ball, right? Um, and, you know, the evidence is all in favor of some sort of information coupling because the shit, th this is the difference again. Actually, this is the other big difference. A predictive account tells you an outcome. You will end up here. The prospective account tells you, sure, you'll end up there, but you'll get there via this particular pattern, this particular path, because you've coupled yourself to an information variable that's changing in a certain way. So it's a it's an out it's an outcome versus process kind of prediction, and the trick is that for a long time people only measured outcomes. Oh look, people arrived at the same time; they must be predicting. It's the only way to get to the future state. Then they started looking at process. How did they get to that particular point? And the devil was in the detail. The devil was in the how. So if you want to convince people about these things, you have to get people out of the mindset of what did they do? What did the what you know? Where did the person end up? And the evidence in favor of prospects of control is in the how did they get to that particular place, right? Uh, and then exactly how they got there, that gives you information, or that tells you about um, which information variable they're coupling to and so on. Um, and so a big chunk of this is effectively what that tells me is that prospective control, people do prospective control because that's all they can do. All the time, the only thing we are able to do is to is to organize our various components under the operation of all the various constraints that are operating on the sign-out. Some of those constraints are physical, things like gravity. Some of them are dynamical properties of us. Some of them are perceptual and informational, right? But you bring all of those things together, <coughs> behavior emerges out of that. Um, and there's lots of reasons to think that that's the, the behavior is emerging out of these coalitions of constraints. And, and the predictive versus perspective control suggests but it can't possibly be anything else because movement reversals are costly, right? Prospective control makes you have to move further, which means you might not get there in time, for example. So if you could predict, maybe it would be better. And the fact that people don't do it is a bit of a hint that maybe they can't. Maybe people don't have access to all the things you need to be able to do in order to do a prediction. Maybe all we've got is access to a bunch of things that are the kinds of things that enable you to do prospective control, right? So, um, yeah, I tend to take all of the, that kind of experimental evidence as, as, as fairly strong evidence that we've got no choice but to be doing prospective control because we don't have access to the things required to do predictions. To, to, I think you answered this, but I think people might have glossed over it. The, the, one of the reasons that people um, are attracted to the predictive model is because of the fact of like processing delays, like how long it takes. Cause right. right. It's, it's this, cause there's, there's a couple of things uh, on that of like, okay, you have your motor visual delay, but also there's also this assumption that the brain is the thing that causes everything to happen. Yeah. Right. So like you send, like it has to be triggered first from the brain. And I don't think that's actually how it works. And I haven't, 
you know, like I've understood certain things maybe like, and I'm, I haven't found the, the research, but I thought there was something talking about how oftentimes the system can, can respond locally first. Mm-hmm. And then I also heard like uh, David Snowden talked about this oftentimes too, the brain will simply come in to check whether yeah. or not what, what, what actually did like was what you was towards your end. And this is, yeah. I guess the other element too, of like, you know, even by your response to ask the question of like, what do you think the role of the brain is? Especially from an ecological perspective of like, if there's no representations yet, we we have this ability to imagine things like all these things. Is this is why I think it's really hard for people to swallow the ecological yeah, sure. perspective on this because of because it doesn't square with some of their own personal experience. And I think sure. some of it has to do with language, though, and, and it's the subtlety of language. Because even as you were talking about predictive versus perspective, even in talking about the research, you use the word predictive, if I understood correctly, or prediction to even talk about the research in terms of the research findings. And that I think even confuses that even confuses people further. Like this is where like language is to what you talked about before earlier of like language is this very complicated thing to work through to communicate ideas to to that then shape behavior. Because the whole reason to even because people are probably like, well, why does this even matter? Because if you don't like the, to why we're, why it's so important to parse this out is because this actually shapes your behavior. What you do practically, yeah. what you do practically is shaped by your understanding, by your beliefs. Like, and if, and that's why to me, it's, it's so important to have this conversation and to like really ask people to pay attention to what is being said. Mm-hmm. Yes. Which would you like? Which question would you like? Uh, sorry. Um, <laughs> the, the addressing the, the issue of the the motor visual delay and why yeah. people want to grab onto a predictive model to to um, to deal with that problem. Yeah. So the basic idea there comes from the, you know the notion of just studying reaction times, right? So I, I can show you a really simple setup where I flash a light and get you to press a button, and there's a delay in that, right? Um, and it seems to be the case that there is t- it takes time for information to into the eye and get to the brain and then have that get turned into into a response. Um, And so part of the answer to that is, well, that's a really boring task that you're asking the system to do. What happens if you ask it to do something more interesting like try and catch a fly ball, right? Um, Or, you know, try try and catch a a line drive that's coming straight at you, right? Um, And so one of the things that's really important to note, and this is one of the things that the ecological approach likes to shift into, is to stop looking at failures of the system and start looking at successes because the successes are actually quite interesting and informative. And actually, the successes are the rule, not the exception, which is lucky because if they weren't, we would all die, right? So one of the really important things about this visual motor delay question is that if all of our experience is lagging a couple of hundred milliseconds behind reality, then we're all dead all the time instantly, right? You cannot, you cannot run a system like that, right? So Two possible explanations. One is that there isn't a delay. Another is that there is a delay, but we're operating on some sort of predictive system, right? So that first of all, there's your motivation for having a predictive system is that the existence of these delays and the fact that we're not dead seems to suggest that we need to be doing at least some sort of prediction. So that's one of the motivations. Um, but then the problem with predictions and one of the key problems with predictions is that they are probabilistic and can be wrong. Um, and prediction is actually a very unstable way of controlling a system, right? Um, it's 
the kind of and you know if, we, if you start trying to implement predictive controllers into robots and things like that and, and, and various kinds of controllers you can do it under very constrained circumstances but you get quite unstable behavior out of that system right and it's really easy to to like you have to build like i say prediction requires access to quite a lot of information right this is Dan Dennett calls this a loan of intelligence. Turvey refers to them as well, right? These kinds of systems need to have a lot of intelligence and capability loan given to them somehow. Uh, and part of the problem is where did that loan come from, right? And it turns out that a lot of those loans don't have a good explanation. It's not clear how you give the system access to the information that it needs in order to be able to make anything like a prediction. So that's part of it. Then the other part of it is, well, just because my reaction time in this one boring task is a certain count. That simple task, measuring reaction time in a really simple task doesn't mean you've measured true reaction time by stripping out all the other stuff. Remember what I said, behavior is task specific. What you've done is you've measured reaction time in a very boring, very simple setup where there isn't any possibility of prospective control, right? Because there is no time varying information, right? There's just a light that comes on or off. That you're una- there's nothing that you're tracking. So your reaction time to intercept something like a line drive is actually a completely different task, right? Completely different task. You're coupling yourself to information uh, about the motion of a ball that is continuously available and removing different limbs and the inertial properties of those are all different, etc. So the other big thing is that just because you can get visual motor delays in some tasks doesn't mean that that's the rule. It just means that that's the context in that task. And if you made the task so boring that a delay was inevitable, that's on you, the experimenter, not necessarily on the organism, right? So the question is, what happens if you provide people with access to the ability to do prospective control? Like, So what happens when you track people and figure out how they catch fly balls? Well, they couple themselves to information variables so that their movements are organized with respect to some future state. So the, the present value and the unfolding of these things over time, so you... you there's other things going on here, right? You mentioned sort of local solutions to things, right? So one of the ways in which I move my arm has to do with just the local dynamics of the arm, right? Not my nervous system doesn't have to tell my arm to do everything, right? There's a whole model of, say, rhythmic movement and, and, and oscillating uh, uh, limb movement called the equilibrium point hypothesis. And there's a boatload of physiological evidence that this is how the nervous system is organized there, where the brain doesn't have to say, move here, move here, move here, move here, move here, move here, as I you know, what about a motor program? Yeah, no, you just have to go. You, 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 all you have to do is my arm right now is sitting at, at a particular balance point. My brain just goes change the balance point, and the and the local dynamics take care of the rest, right? So there's a big chunk of of our behavior and the structure, the detailed structure of our behavior that is taken care of at the local level, and it just has to do with the dynamical organization at that local level. Uh, so that's another thing. Another thing there's. Uh, when you go looking at the brain and considering it in terms of its network structure, uh, there's all kinds of interesting network structures, things called motifs, right? So a motif is a particular, is a, is a particular network organization designed to achieve a certain functional a- outcome for a, for a brain network. And you can build motifs, which are network organizations that couple two distinct, spatially distinct parts of a network and that couples them together with zero time lag, right? So there's neural solutions. So these architectural solutions, network solutions to these problems, um, and so on and so forth. So the problem, so the issue is that, yeah, sure, right, you have, we have to front up and ask these questions about, uh, um, but 
at all times the notion of a transmission delay and a visual motor delay being a problem is premised on the idea that behavior is a linear is the result of a linear causal chain of events, right? Where light comes into the eye, then has to do something else, then has to do something else, then has to do something else, then has to come out as an output. That's not what's happening. What's actually going on is that you are a non-linear dynamical system that gets up and running and then uh, tunes into everything else that you're going on, uh, that's going on in your environment. And that's happening at multiple timescales supported by multiple mechanisms. Um, and so all of a sudden the problem becomes different, right? Uh, the, that processing delay is just becomes an artifact of the task, not an artifact of the organism and so on. So effectively what you have to do is you just have to start asking more, you have to just ask different questions. And again, the, the moral is so you, you focus much more on process than outcome, right? You have to ask questions not about when did the thing react, but how did it go about reacting and what was available to it to react and what were the constraints that were operating on it while it was acting, right? And so on and so on. All right. To, to kind of bring this to sort of a close, it's, it's kind of a, I'm, I'm a Minnesotan. So there's a thing called a Minnesota goodbye. So I don't know if you're familiar with that, but no. we're, we're going to kind of, it, it basically you say goodbye and then you talk for 15 minutes and then you say okay. goodbye again and you talk. And so we're going <laughs> to, it's, it's kind of what's happening here. I, I want to throw this over to both Robert and, and Baker to see like, okay, what, what thoughts? Cause I've been, kind of dominating the conversation. So I want to see if you guys have anything that you want to chime in on. Uh, what we, what we, okay. You sure? I'll keep it short and sweet. I do not have anything to add. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, so to kind of then wrap up, what are some good resources that you would recommend people like, cause obviously we can't cover everything. Like what are, sure. what are some things maybe too, like that you would like to say to like the community and then maybe specifically the baseball community, but probably just the community at large and, and then like, you know, next steps for people. So to the community at large, I just want to say that um, I think, I think the ecological approach has a lot to offer in terms of helping you ask and answer the questions that you want answers to. Um, I really do believe that. Uh, I really believe that. The people who are working in coaching and athletes and you know scientists and data analysts and all those kinds of things everybody's everybody's working in good faith everybody's trying to do well by the people that they're working for and with and they're all trying to find ways to do to ask good questions and come up with good answers that enable people to have good practice i think that's true and my only pitch here is that i think that the ecological approach broadly speaking um, has a huge amount to offer that entire process um, in terms of figuring out what what constitutes a good question um, and figures out what constitutes a good measure of a behavior that can actually tell you something. I think that there's loads of um, I think there's loads of value there to, to be had. Um, and it would be, you know, part of part of my job is just trying to generally raise awareness and make people understand that there are options out there when you're trying to figure out how to think about behavior there's more than one way to think about it. And the ecological approach is a, is a substantive player on that field, right? We're not a fringe little group. We're not a fringe little group. We've been up and at them and going for a long time. And we have a lot of reasons to think that the things that we're saying and the things that we're advocating for are indeed how these systems, these behavioral systems work. So I think we, I think we have a lot to offer. And it's, I've seen that a lot lately where people are wandering around. They, they've got really good questions, but they just don't know how to go about asking them. And that's, that's the thing we can, we can certainly do. 
Um, in terms of resources, if, I mean, look, frankly, if you're, if you're, if you're in the sporting world and you're interested in finding out anything about the ecological approach, I can only recommend Rob Gray's podcast and book, right? His podcast is a <clears throat> remarkable resource that he's been producing over the last five, six years. And it's, a, it's an incredible contribution to the field and it's accessible, right? It's really accessible. He, you know, Rob spends a lot of his time and there's lots of different ways of going in it. So he goes in the interviews and he talks to people, scientists, practitioners and things like that. So you can go and listen to people who are trying to make this stuff work and listen to how they talk about it and what they're trying to do and how they approach the problem. <clears throat> but he also spends time working his way through um, kind of theoretical issues and theoretical topics, particular questions, you know, what is calibration, what is direct perception, what is direct learning, etc. where he's, he's trying to walk people through the basics of that. Uh, and again, like you're going to have to do some work. If you're interested in this uh, and you think it might be, have, you're going to have to give it some time and you're going to have to come to it prepared to put a bit of effort in because there's no other way to go about doing that. But if, you're, if, if you are, then we can try and, you know, that, that conversation can be productive, I think. So, like, in terms of resources, in terms of first steps, I always recommend Rob's podcast is just a really good resource. Um, I mean, yeah, I, I think those are the best things. Uh, really to recommend right now. And then once you've got that foot in the door, come talk to me and I'll tell you the next thing. Well, I mean, I think that's that, that actually right there, that last piece is the, is the thing that I've, I've learned. And I think maybe you can speak to this. I have this uh, fear of, you know, talking to people reaching out because like from, I'm only where I'm at today because of the fact that I've, I've had such close interactions with, with Sean and Tyler. Right. Like, like I, I wouldn't be because if I were just reading the literature by myself, I, I guess they help me attune to what's more specifying. Yeah. And, and like, otherwise, like, cause I look at, for example, Sean, where he's at right now, that when you do it on your own, like it takes X number of years of like interacting with the information. Not that Sean hasn't been talking to people and whatever, no, no, but like sure. he, he has done a lot of it on his own trial and error. And like, we get the benefit of his in some ways. So like for me personally, I get the benefit of his mistakes yep, and like, absolutely. I I'm able to shortcut, like for me, I got to where I'm at. That's I'm not saying I'm where Sean's at, but I'm a lot closer to where Sean, like I'm, I'm much further on that path than like where Sean was potentially, yes. you know, and, and, and because it, because of the fact of the interaction that I've gotten to shortcut these things. And that yeah, I think totally. is like, you don't make the mistake that uh, that one organization did of butchering the constraint-led approach if you actually talk to people yeah. who are in the industry, like who have developed these ideas and concepts. That gets yeah. corrected. Sorry, you were going to say. Well, I'm just look. I'm just and as an educator, right? Part of my job is being a scientist, but part of my job is being an educator. And as an educator, um. You're exactly right. Like I've benefited from that as well, you know. So my PhD supervisor Jeff Bingham, student of Turvey, right? So so Turvey worked with Gibson and learned and figured out a whole bunch of stuff, and then he taught it to Jeff, and there was there was indeed that shortcutting, and that's the whole point, right? And then I got to I got to learn from Jeff, and then I've learned over the years of talking and interacting and working with people as well. That's the whole point, right? Um, so in terms of reaching out, right, reach out to us. Because, like, you know, I've just sat here and chatted to you guys for a couple of hours. It was fun. And I've learned, I've taught, you know, I've learned a bunch of things myself, right? I get better, you know, I'm, I'm trying to get better at articulating these things. You guys have said some stuff that's made me stop and go, oh, that's interesting. I can hook that up with that, right? This is, 
this is this is part of the job. This is part of trying to figure out how to get this to work. Uh, is in this communication, and yeah, like the whole point is that it's not up to you to reinvent ecological psychology every single time, right? You get to you get to stand on the shoulders of those giants. That's the whole point of having that existing literature. But it's an existing literature, right? It's a bunch of papers. It's a bunch of books. It's got to be brought to life somehow, right? And so one way to bring it, you know, I try to bring it to life in classes and Rob tries to bring it to life in his classes, but also through his podcast. And other people, other coaches are trying to bring it to life through the papers that they publish, but also through the, their practice and their activity at their, at their clubs, right? So there's lots of different people trying to bring this stuff to life in lots of different ways. And different people respond and resonate and are interested and engage with different ways of bringing those things to life. So, and we're all, we all kind of give a damn. We all think this is a good idea. And we, it's not just that it's a good idea, but it's an idea that has value. We think this is a, we, we think this is a really good way of going about doing things that's going to, for me as a scientist, it's going to teach me things about actual mechanisms of perception action systems. And for a coach, it, it, you know, people get into it because they think it's actually going to enable them to do what they actually want to do, which is to help support their athletes become the best that they can possibly be and so on and so forth. So yeah, we're all in it and we all want to be talking about it and we all want to be engaged. So, you know, that's the other thing. Just reach out and, you know, I'm, I'm on Twitter. I'm, you can drop me an email. I'm always happy to have these chats, right? Cause it's, 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 it's fun. It's, it's part of moving this forward and keeping it alive. That's the other thing, right? Is that it's, it's important to, that people keep like yourselves, keep coming in and keep coming in with, with fresh ideas and fresh understandings and fresh questions and problems that you're trying to address so that we're spreading out and trying to tackle more and more and more complicated and different things so that we're, so that we're actually building something. Right. Uh, and I think that's really important. And we're all, we're all, we're all keen to make sure that happens. Um, so. so to, to kind of uh, land the plane, where can people, uh, find you reach out like what's your twitter handle uh potentially email like where where's the easiest way for people to kind of uh reach out to you twitter's a pretty reliable place to find me uh these days so i'm at psych scientists um on twitter uh and uh, i have a blog uh it's called notes from two scientific psychologists which has a long history for various reasons but that's what it's called um there's a, a boatload of stuff that i've been developing there over the years and writing um, and yeah, uh, so I'm a, I'm a, I'm a reader in psychology at Leeds Beckett University in Leeds in the United Kingdom. Uh, and so my email here is a.d.wilson at leedsbeckett.ac.uk. Um, and I have a lot of conversations and, uh, uh, with people and I'm always kind of happy to try and find some time. You know, things are busy, teaching has started and I've got other things going on as well, but I'm usually happy to try and find time to talk to people because, uh, it's part of my job. I consider it to be part of my job, but also it's fun and it's exciting and it's, I always learn. Well, thank you so much for coming on and talking with us for, for a good length of time. My pleasure. Yeah, thank you so much, Andrew. Really meant, meant a lot. Learned a lot here in this conversation. Yeah, I appreciate it. No, this is good. This is a really fun, fun chat to be part of. Thank you very much.